0: Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to The Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Jose Manuel Redondo, and we're going to be talking about uh, the fifth-century philosopher Proclus, um, who was also an astrologer somebody that integrated astrology into Platonic philosophy, as well as his work in theurgy. So hey, welcome to the show. Chris, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me today yeah we've been talking about doing this episode for a number of years and we we actually met at an astrology conference years ago i think um ncgr conference wasn't it yeah that's right in baltimore yeah the baltimore conference um so this has been a long time in coming in the meantime you um have been doing work in this field and you specifically did a PhD dissertation in 2015 on Proclus and his work in Theurgy, which touched on some of its connections with astrology. Right?
1: Yes, uh, I've been working on late antiquity Platonism. Um, that that's been my my main focus of of research, my
0: my work on research, academic research. That is. Okay. And prior to that. Um, I think you said, did you say at one point that you had studied with with Robert Zoller or what was your background in astrology?
1: Yeah, I started studying astrology pretty much at the same time I started studying uh, philosophy. Um, and a couple of years later in a UAC conference, I uh, met Robert Zoller, who was friends with a teacher, uh, with my teacher, Luis Lesur. So um, after that conference, I went to live uh, to a place upstate New York which it, uh, uh, it it happened to be the place where where Robert was was living. So we developed uh, a, a close relationship uh, for a while and I, I became his uh, student so yeah I, I studied his full diploma course and he also had a group here in in Mexico City so he came several several times to give different
0: lectures and courses and and readings, of course. Nice. That's amazing. Um, mm-hmm. So, and then, but a lot of that work in astrology and maybe going back and studying ancient astrology or medieval astrology, that also ignited your interest in philosophy and you decided to go to school for that or to go back to school for that? Um, yeah, at, at some point I was sort of disappointed with the academy.
1: Because I started to study philosophy first, and I was immediately interested in Greek philosophy, and particularly in in so called Neoplatonism, and um, then I was invited to these astrology classes. So uh, already in my mind, with this concept of, of uh, concepts of uh, uh, logos and. Uh, and this interest in cosmology on, on the part of the philosophers uh, made me very curious to to hear to hear about astrology and uh, I, I became enamorated immediately and kept studying them uh, both of them. But I got uh, progressively more disappointed with the Academy, so I I left uh, the academy. However,, um, a few years later, there, there started to be these programs, um, of, uh, academic research, post, uh, post grad programs, uh, like the Sophia group on, um, Nick Campion's uh, group and another that could integrate, uh, astrology into the academy. So, uh, that got me very interested to go back to the academy, finish my degrees and, um, Then I did my MA partly with the Sophia group um, and then did my PhD and more or less at the same time I started uh, teaching. I I teach at the university. It's been for 15 years now, um,
0: medieval and Renaissance philosophy. And I also have a seminar on Neoplatonism. Awesome. Okay. So yeah, I mean, things have really changed in the academic community over the past 10 to, to 20 years in terms of lots more scholars are getting involved in the study of, of ancient astrology as part of not just the history of science, but the history of religion and philosophy and, and a number of other areas that has become a more acceptable uh, discipline to study. Yeah, exactly.
1: And um, you can also see this in, in the last decades regarding Neoplatonism itself. There's been interesting paradigm shifts in, in in the way uh, it's uh, the, the theme it's been approached and it's been a, a growing field of of, of interest uh, of of researchers, and uh, this has led to a different appreciation of the theme of theurgy, um, which uh, refers to the the interest these uh, philosophers show in the practice of ritual and of divination in in the in the mystical states um seen as uh, as fountains of knowledge uh so there's been interesting changes in in, in that regards uh, a far more positive view um about this
0: appreciation they they have towards these practices that makes sense okay all right well let's um let's situate things first with our main uh character or our main person that we're going to be talking about which is uh the fifth century astrologer Proclus. And then maybe we'll talk about and, and help contextualize the philosophical tradition that he's part of and everything else. So first things first, who was Proclus and what do we know about him or why is he important? Well, he was the head of the Platonic of, uh, Academy of Athens
1: for over 50 years. And um, and one of the last major Greek uh, philosophers of, of antiquity, who had a very profound impact in later traditions. In the medieval times, both in, the, in Islamic philosophy, uh, Jewish and, and Christian philosophies. Um, then in the Renaissance, there was also uh, a rediscovery of other aspects and, uh, of Proclus thought, uh, as well as texts. And this impact lasted all the way up to the um, German idealists, like, uh, people like like Hegel, who, after Proclus, um, follows these triadic schemes in in his metaphysics and and other philosophical uh, discourses. So, um, it's in terms of historical significance, it is a huge uh, figure of uh,
0: from late. From late antiquity, and um... so he was the head of the Platonic Academy, and he was one of the last heads of the Platonic Academy that had started many centuries earlier, almost a thousand years earlier. Um, but he was the one of the last heads of the Academy before, because um, this was at a time uh, towards the later parts of the Roman Empire when um christianity had become the dominant religion and not long after proclus um it became not permissible to have the different um like ancient greek pagan schools of philosophy and they were actually closed not long after proclus's lifetime right
1: yeah exactly um it was during
0: uh,
1: his lifetime that spans pretty much the 5th century that uh, um, the the western part of the empire collapsed. So it was a very critical time and Christianity had already uh, imposed uh, culturally. So uh, already um, the pagan practices in the school had to be done very discreetly. And uh, he could not be so openly uh, critical but more indirectly critical of, of the Christians. Um, and, and Proclus actually it's a figure of reference for, uh, Christian debates on, on certain matters like that, uh, about the eternity of the cosmos. Mm, and not much after his death, um, there's these edicts that, um, Th- that means the, the closure of the uh, uh, Athens schools of, of philosophy. The Alexandrian schools survived for a little longer uh, because they could negotiate with authorities that they would no longer teach Plato, only Aristotle, Aristotle and in a manner not contrary to, to Christianity. Um, however, uh, a, a century before that in, in Alexandria, uh, Hypatia was brutally uh, murdered. So there was already a lot of tension uh, uh, by the time Proclus came to the to the academy.
0: Right. So Hypatia she was uh, killed by a, a Christian mob in the year 415 exactly. CE in mm-hmm. Alexandria and then Proclus himself was born around that time. He was supposed to he was born in 412 exactly. CE. Exactly. Um, and then he died in the year 485 CE. And then um, Justinian closed the pagan schools in Athens in the year 529 CE. So that's just a few decades after Proclus died um, that the school that he was part of that had been around for centuries was, was completely closed down, at least in, in Greece itself, in Athens itself, which was the original home of, of Greek philosophy, of classical Greek philosophy of Plato and Aristotle? Yeah, that's right.
1: I mean, there was not a a complete or perfect continuity of the academy from Plato to to Proclus, um, among other things, because of the Roman invasion and destruction of of Athens. But um, there was a a very, pretty much functional continuity. And um, the cultural context it was still pretty much the same um, in, in terms of the uh, religious festivities still done on on Athens at the time of Proclus. However, um, his biographer Marinos tells us that Proclus has a dream of Athena, who asks him to take his statue uh, from from his temple to his house to be protected from the vandalism of 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 the Christians when one understands so um uh, and apparently Proclus had to leave Athens for one year because of some polemics he went into with the Christian authorities
0: okay so Mm -hmm. yeah so things were sort of uh, tumultuous it was kind of a tumultuous time by that point and he's the end of a very long line of philosophers um, in some ways, but then, as you said, because he was one of the last, he was also a prolific um, author and prolific philosopher, and he wrote a lot of different philosophical texts in the Platonic tradition, as well as a lot of commentaries on earlier the works of earlier philosophers like Plato. And a lot of these works then ended up being passed on and became very influential in the medieval period and during the Renaissance. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Proclus presents an impressive uh, Hellenic summa of of, of knowledge. Uh, He's sort of um, integrating from Homer and Esiod to the Pythagoreans and the Orphics and and all the Platonic um, uh, philosophers, which from the Platonic view would include uh, Aristotle. Um, And by the time of Plotinus, there's also an integration of the stoics into the philosophical discourse of of platonism by um after marcus aurelius reign um progressively will only remain the the platonic um, uh, school because uh, um, the the peripatetics the, the stoics with um would be reduced as a school, as a as a philosophical school, um, but uh, the Platonic schools would uh, be then the remaining um uh, center of Hellenic uh, uh, discourse or, or or culture. So uh, it's a huge uh, um, integration that he makes of the whole of of the history of Greek philosophy. By by that time, he refers to. To the Presocratics, the, the, the philosophers we call the Presocratics, all the way up to his uh, his teacher uh, Syrianus. So yeah, it's it's a very long su- succession that it's viewed by him as the Hermaikeseira, as as the uh, uh, Hermetic or chain of Hermes um, to which uh, belong all these uh, souls.
0: Brilliant. Okay. So yeah, so that situates him pretty well as an important philosopher um, at the end of this tradition and then at the, the beginning of what will eventually become the medieval tradition. Um, but then he also, for the purpose of our audience, one of the things that's interesting is while there's allusions in like a lot of earlier philosophers to astrology, like there's tantalizing hints perhaps towards a, a, something like astrology in, in Plato. Um, through like the myth of Ur or through um, the Timaeus. Um, What we know of as astrology wasn't fully developed, at least in terms of Hellenistic astrology, until a century or two after Plato died. Um, And what's interesting about Proclus is he's an example of a first-rate philosopher and the head of a philosophical academy who is also clearly very um, conversant in astrology Who's familiar with and cites some of the major astrological texts, including the texts of Ptolemy and Petosyrus, um, but also seems to have like interests in it to the extent that he he integrates it to some extent in his philosophy as well. I think, right? Yes, uh, I think um, in
1: Proclus, Proclus is the better example of uh, the case of a philosopher where you fully uh, find uh, astrology integrated in his theory and and practice. Um, We know that he wrote some works on astrology, not only on the work of Ptolemy, which there's polemics about the authenticity of the so-called paraphrase and another commentary. Some some important scholars um, uh, believe that it, it, it is positively from Proclus, others deny it. Uh, but we do know that uh, he wrote some works on astrology, on on the effects of on of the eclipses, on on the de- on the decans, and um, and and other works besides his works on astronomy, because he's a very um, knowledgeable philosopher on astronomy. He he used to pr- uh, he's a working astronomist. He practices. Uh, celestial observations and measurements of the heavens, and uh, uh, besides um, discussing different theoretical models to understand the the heavens and its cycles.
0: Okay, right. And you mentioned the Proclus paraphrase of Ptolemy, which is usually, like typically up until recently, the only context in which Proclus is usually talked about in the astrological community is that there's this... Um, it's like ptolemy wrote his four book long astrological text in the 2nd century which became hugely influential but it's an extremely dense um complex and often very difficultly worded greek text and at some point sometime after ptolemy somebody tried to write a sort of simplified version of ptolemy's text And at one point in the manuscript tradition, it was attributed to Proclus, so it's usually referred to as the Proclus paraphrase. And up until the 20th century, most of the translations, at least in English, of Ptolemy were done from the the simplified Proclus paraphrase instead of from the Tetrabiblos or the exact Tetrabiblos itself. Um, But in modern times, most contemporary scholars usually don't think that Proclus was the author of that paraphrase. Although I, I haven't really revisited that to see if that's still the current consensus or if that's founded, uh, what that's founded on, but at least up until now, that's what he's mainly been associated with in the astrological community.
1: Yeah, exactly. However, there are two works of uh, Proclus on, on Ptolemy's Tetra and there's also a work of him on his on the hypothesis he presents on the Almagest on on his astronomical
0: work. But, um, so he was and, clearly like familiar with Ptolemy, and had an interest in yeah. working you comment, commenting on Ptolemy's works already exactly exactly so um I'm
1: I believe it is uh this second work on Ptolemy's tetra-biblos that it's uh by some scholars um attributed uh, to to Proclus um you have um you have uh,
0: Lucas Yorbanes. You talking um, about the commentary? Sorry? Are you talking about the commentary as the second work? Yeah, the commentary, uh, n- not the paraphrase,
1: but uh, but it's sort of a, a, a commentary on
0: on uh, on the Tetrawiblos. So there's some you're saying there's some scholars that think that that's, that was written by Proclus? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, cuz that's a that's a whole separate interesting text that's never been Fully translated in before at least not into English. Um, I know that I think there's a Spanish translation in progress right now in critical edition, um, but that text that's really interesting. I mean, that would be really interesting if that was by Proclus. Um, and certainly, I think I feel like um, with the work that's been done on Proclus lately over the past decade or two, that there does need to be a reappraisal of his like interest in astrology. And perhaps that reappraisal could lead us to then reassess the possibility or or not of some of these other works actually genuinely being attributed to him
1: yeah i think so i, I think so um th- there's a current change in in the appreciation of of these aspects of uh, proclus uh, work which um um uh, belonged uh, under the the heading of, of theurgy which is like uh, uh, a term that uh, englobes different uh, practices divinatory and ritual practices and um, it's one of the the terms Proclus uses most but not the only one he uses as uh, um, synonym for, uh, for theurgy also, the hieratic techne, the hieratic arts, which is a more traditional term that you find also in, in Plato, uh, telestike, which is also a very traditional term. So um, theurgy sort of um, embraces many different notions, uh, terms and notions that refer to different practices, uh, ritual, divinatory
0: practices. And the the basic word theurgy itself means like God working or working with the gods, right? Exactly, exactly. God in God Greek. working, which uh, jamblichus interprets
1: in two senses. In its primary sense, it refers to the activities of of the gods themselves, and in a secondary sense, to the activity of humans directed to the to the gods, which. Um, imitate uh the the first sense the the activities of the gods themselves which has as a result the cosmos Be, uh, to say it in another way that the, the cosmos is seen as the liturgical um uh, result
0: of uh, the
1: gods theurgies
0: okay so all right so we're getting in deep into theurgy and this is one of proclus's primary interests and this is something that sets him apart and makes late Platonism uh, at this stage in the, in the what the 5th century uh, CE distinct from some of the earlier stages in Platonism. Um, and theurgy in this context is partially being conceptualized as, as a ritualized practice in order to commune with or achieve some sort of union with the gods. Exactly, the um,
1: the final goal of theology it's uh, genesis or unification of the soul with the uh, with its leader god with with the gods and ultimately with the with the one, which is uh, the the way, uh, Neoplatonists refer to the first principle of their theology and 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 metaphysics. Um, Proclus works in this way uh, in in the line. Uh, Set up by by Iamblichus, who um, criticizing the over rationalist approaches to to philosophy and and even ritual by by Porphyry, a Plotinus' student, um, Iamblichus proposes to place theurgy above uh, philosophy, given uh our own reasons uh limitations natural uh, limitations and the and in the end the limitations of language of um and rational discursivity there's a need by philosophers to recur to symbolic thought which is a way that uh, jamblichus characterizes the dynamic of of theurgy as operated by way of of, of symbols um so there's a deep uh, metaphysics of, of symbolism, of analogy, of metaphor, all, all these uh, conceived as elements of the language and practice of, of theurgy. So it, it is seen sort of as a, a necessary complement to philosophy after uh, rigorous um, reflections on the limits of, of rational thought um, and, and of language itself. Um, so there's, there's complex, uh, philosophical, uh, arguments of the need of, of, of theurgy and how, in a sense, it is superior to, uh, to philosophy. Something that it's already, um, in, in Plato, in, in Sith in, in, in a way, if, if we think of the dialogue of the Phaedrus, where the mania the uh, th- this divine madness are, are distinguished as um, a source of, of wisdom, but a wisdom that uh, since it is beyond our reason's capacity, it is described as madness, but distinguished from human madness. It is divine mad- madness and it, and it responds to innate mechanisms of knowledge in the human in the human being articulated in terms of metaphors, of symbols, of of poetic thought, uh, basically, but put into practice. So, um, uh, theology, uh, in a way, uh, it can be defined as practical metaphysics, as Hmm. applied theology, um, because for these philosophers, there is no separation between the theoretical and the practical. They form uh, form a unity.
0: Yeah, I was reading an article on Proclus by Carlos Steele, and one line that I I got that I thought was interesting is he said that Proclus was a deeply religious man and was convinced that the theoretical philosophy was not sufficient to connect us with the gods, but that the theory um, was necessary, that theurgy was necessary as well in order to achieve salvation of the soul. Do you think that's that's a good summary to some extent?
1: Yeah. Um... Reason it's necessary but not sufficient. So there's uh, th- there's need to develop. For Proclus, it is as important uh, for the philosopher to develop uh, his capacity in formal demonstrations as in terms of mythical thought, of getting acquaintance with uh, 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 myth and, and ritual as a form of metaphysical thought. So, uh, ritual it's uh, an, an astrology, um, it's it's understood as an ethical practice, as an ethical tool that has uh, a, a metaphysical uh,
0: foundation. Okay. So theurgy brings in a component where it's hard to characterize because it involves things that, that we would characterize maybe as religious, but also as a sort of magical practice to some extent as well, Right. Yeah, yes, exactly.
1: Uh, however, um, we must be careful not to approach these ideas from a modern perspective that labels uh, all magical thought as related to the irrational. For these philosophers, um, the divination uh, uh, and ritual practices belong to a realm that we could label uh, uh, as metarational. And since it is beyond our comprehension, then it's it's viewed as as madness. But as I said, divine madness, uh, distinguished from from human madness, and positively positively um, regarding divine madness as a source of of meaning of wisdom for
0: for the human being. Right, because Plato made room for. Um, divination and especially dispired, inspired divination from oracles that were receiving some sort of revealed um, information from the gods or from some um, divine entities
1: yeah exactly
0: um, it is usually not
1: uh, acknowledged but uh, divination it is present uh, in in practical terms in the thought of Plato, in the thought of Aristotle, in, in their political thought, uh, in in the case of the Dialogue of, of the Lost, which is his uh, uh, last work, um, there are clear regulations regarding uh, divinatory and ritual practices. But these are not uh, excluded or uh, even less thought of as superstitious in in. In the sense we usually um, acknowledge this this term, that they are clearly um, valued as as necessary both for the individual and for the collective, which has to order itself, the community, according to the astral cycles in Plato's work. Um, in, in other words, we can see in Plato's work um, an adaptation of far older. Um traditions of, of knowledge which uh, politically view uh, value in for the community in adapting to the different astral cycles
0: hmm. okay uh yeah i mean that's i want to get into plato and i want to try to situate things in terms of maybe explaining the difference between Sort of Plato and Platonism versus Middle Platonism versus the era of Neoplatonism that Proclus is kind of the, the last major representative of. Um, is there anything else we should touch base on in terms of theurgy and explaining what that means and perhaps how it ties into astrology before we sort of go through a broader overview of things and, and then circle back to that later?
1: Yeah, maybe uh, to point out that um, it it is Giamblicos, which is a a very important uh, reference for for Proclus, who criticizes what he regards as technical astrology versus uh, theurgical astrology, which would be this philosophical um, interpretation, integration of astrology. Uh, Astrology being uh, central to theurgical practices in the sense that uh, it is the astrological correspondences that are used in in the ritual practices, that is, the correspondences between planets and, uh, you know, plants, uh, stones, uh, uh, different elements in, in the natural world. But it's also astrological in the sense that it is important to practice ritual at the appropriate astrological time. So, so it like... pretty much structures the whole of uh, of theurgical activity which is understood as uh, applying the same laws of creation that is theurgy follows what plato is called demurgy the activity of the god dedicated to the eternal fabrication of 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 the world um, and it is uh, and theurgy it's applied by um, by a philosopher that has to be, uh, uh, yes, uh, uh, a rational scientist, but a, a pious uh, scientist, uh, uh, a scientist that works in um, piously, and and at the same time has to be a virtuous philosopher. So it's it's inseparable uh, ethics, science, ritual practice in in these views.
0: Okay, so. The access point that astrologers would be most familiar with is this is where we have some crossover with the concept of electional astrology and like choosing opportune or auspicious moments to act or to not act in some instances if things are inauspicious, and that this perhaps would have been something that would have been relevant and used from a technical standpoint in theurgy, in terms of having or knowing the appropriate moments to do certain rituals or to uh, invoke or to attempt to commune with certain gods.
1: Exactly, exactly. That, that's a very important uh, point in ritual practices, that they are done at the appropriate time. And for that, you have the, the rules of astrology. Um, besides the application, as I said, of all the enormous range of astrological correspondences in 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 ritual, by way of of the, um, stones, herbs, music, tones, colors. I mean, it, it it's um the whole natural world in in all its order and 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 hierarchies
0: is seen astrologically. Let's expand on that point because I think that's really crucial. And I was surprised to see this in Proclus that the concept, um, the earlier concept of cosmic sympathy plays a major role in Proclus and not just a theoretical one but a very practical role exactly yeah and he even there's some surviving
1: fragments of a text of Proclus on the principles of theurgy which is called on the Euratic Arts of the Greeks and there he gives practical examples of the stones that correspond to the luminaries and the different herbs to be used at different times for, um, to expel, uh, solar demons that might be out of place and things like that. He gives very precise, specific examples of the use of concrete substances, uh, regarding, uh, what it's, uh, um, described as these celestial terrestrial correspondences.
0: So, um... So terrestrial and celestial correspondences, I think that's really important that he thought there were correspondences or that there was some sort of sympathy between things that were happening in the heavens and things happening on Earth, but that sometimes through identifying those things on Earth that matched certain things in the heaven, you could then maybe not exploit i'm trying to think of the right word but that connection but that that was a way to establish the connection by identifying the correct um connections between celestial and terrestrial things yeah
1: exactly the, um however they are not seen as two separate realms but as fundamentally one or or united so things uh in the earth are um thing, things in uh, you find sorry, you find terrestrial things in heaven in a celestial manner and celestial things in the earth in an earthly manner, says the, the, the text. So they they are fundamentally connected and um and both things in earth and in heaven belong uh to different chains which are headed by the gods
0: themselves. Okay. Um so yeah, that's very familiar to us from astrology then, and we can see how then in Proclus, we have very high-level philosophy of like of Platonism and some of the other philosophical schools being integrated into um, uh, uh, the magical tradition, being integrated into the astrological tradition, um, and all of this coming together into a very interesting blend, which then kind of gets handed off and we see the results of some of that in some of the later magical traditions like in Haran, for example, which is the place that eventually produced the the Picatrix um, and other magical works like that, which are very much more like applied um, magical and electional astrology in practice.
1: Yeah, they they pretty much inherit this kind of uh, of practices of um, where the singing of hymns to the gods at the appropriate time and using all the different uh, correspondences in- integrated, uh, it, it's, it's one of the main exercises um, you find there. There is some uh, polemics uh, regarding uh, the last Platonists that apparently may have gone to, to Haran um, and established uh, there. Because after Proclus, you, you have uh, Damascus and Simplicius, which are also uh, important figures, and, and they belong to the 6th century, and they would be the very last um, important uh, Greek philosophers. Um, and, and both of them apparently may have gone to, to Haran. So uh, from there, you would, you would explain the the transmission of um hellenic astral ritual practices to um to this area as we see and in the in the picatrix um where there's references to uh, neoplatonic metaphysics and cosmology
0: uh uh, pretty much
1: as as the frame of of the of these
0: practices right because once the pagan philosophical schools were closed and were banned. Some of the philosophers were supposed to have packed up their bags and all of their books and to move moved to um to Haran and to other cities that were associated with the Persian Empire at that point. And then it's not in the centuries subsequent to that, we see the production of books like the Picatrix, which obviously, like you said, are very influenced by things like Neoplatonism. Exactly. I mean, you find, of course, also uh, important traces
1: of hermetism in the, in the Picatrix. But uh, one has to keep in mind that um, in the case of Jamblicus Theurgy, uh, this is inseparable from what we call hermetism. So th- there's a uh, uh, they, they uh, superimposed Jamblicus Theurgy and and hermetism as a, a, a as a phenomenon. So. Uh, in a sense, it's natural that you find these strands of uh, Platonism and Hermitism together in, in, a, in a book like The Picatrix.
0: Right. Um, so you mentioned that part of the importance for the philosopher is there were um, things involved in theurgy involving things like purification, um, virtue, and ethics. And um, one of the things I thought interesting in the biography of Proclus that was written by his student and successor Marinus is that he said that um, Proclus performed conspicuous and holy rituals at the New Moons and also that he observed the rising midday and setting sun. So he was very much tied into and used some astronomical or astrological cycles in order to time his religious rituals and observances exactly yeah yeah that's part of what uh, marinus uh um tells us
1: and um in the case of proclus may uh, regarding this late uh platonist he uh, he seems to be the most interested in the chaldean tradition in the chaldean traditions uh which includes the so-called uh, Chaldean oracles, which is a, a, a collection of oracles from the gods who, who are um, evidently very uh, knowledgeable about uh, platonic metaphysics and, and, and theology, um, which, by the way, uh, the, the stories regarding the origin of these oracles involve a father and a son, the, the Giuliani, uh, Julian the theurgist, Um, and Julian the Chaldean, whom received these uh, metaphysical oracles uh, from the gods through the soul of Plato, which is labeled as belonging to Apollo and Hermes. So um, this is like sacred literature for the late uh, Platonists, um, which has a, a value analog to that of Plato, and to that of Homer and Hesiod, uh, read as uh, cryptic metaphysicians—that is, as prophets whose mythology um, hides and reveals at the same time a metaphysics aching to Plato's, aching to Orpheus and Pythagoras, and 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 so on.
0: Right. So the the Chaldean oracles were a set of. Um, revealed sort of wisdom that um, was developed or, or that came about at least somewhere around like the third century and then was uh, became integrated into subsequent strands of Platonism from that point forward and that's part of the era of Platonism that's referred to as Neoplatonism, right?
1: Yeah the, the Chaldean Oracles date from the late second to the century to the beginning of, of, of the third. And it is Porphyry, uh, Plotinus' um, a pupil, who uh, 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 really interests himself in in this literature. And then, after him, uh, Jamblicus, uh, Serinus and, and Serianus and Proclus, among others, make make this literature uh, central for their for the, the development of, of their Platonism. Now, um, usually Neoplatonism um, is regarded from Plotinus onwards. Um, you, st- you still read in conventional histories of philosophy that Plotinus was the founder of Neoplatonism. However, it might be appropriate here to um, to, uh, to recognize that this label, Belongs to the historiographers of, of philosophy of the eighteenth century um, German Protestant theologians who uh, initially use this term, this label, to separate um, the the Platonists from Plato, a Plato, uh, a Christianized Plato, seen as an anticipation of. Uh, Christian the, the Christian message or, or Christian philosophy. So um, uh, now it's uh, it has become uh, common to question or, or, or even not to use anymore the, the label Neoplatonism because uh, uh, Plotinus, for example, is very clear that um, he's, he does not pretend to innovate and he's not telling us anything that it's not already, uh, in plato um that he remains faithful to his maybe more to his spirit than to his writing um but um he would uh, um negate to be called uh, a, a neoplatonist uh, uh, plotinus and and so with the rest of the of the platonists because um they do not talk also about platonism that uh, that term is also modern but they speak about Platonicoi. They uh, recognize among themselves of, as uh, Platonists, we, we would say, even though they might um, in sometimes strongly disagree or oppose in terms of metaphysical or psychological views. For example, uh, Iamblico, after Jamblicus, Platonists are very critical of Plotinus' notion of the soul and, and, and some of his uh, metaphysical arguments. However, we have to consider that for these schools of philosophy, arguments and philosophical discourse is uh, subordinate or secondary to philosophy understood as a way of life. Um, the French Hellenist Pierre talks about philosophy as a spiritual practice and form of life. So, um, uh, that has to do with practice, not with theory, which is what we usually call ethics. Um, so <coughs> there sorry, there might be disagreement in different uh, theoretical issues, but still uh, all of them embrace uh, a way of life. because in in antiquity, when you choose when one had to choose a philosophical school, Um, You would not choose in terms of of the theories they offered, but on the way of life they offered, which uh, demanded certain dogmas in the original sense, which are just um, starting points, not principles that cannot be questioned. They are just starting points you have to assume um, regarding a theory, but mainly regarding a way of conducting in, in, in life. Um, and this um, practical side included the uh, all very different kinds of um, techniques and, and exercises um, from the mystery traditions, the use of divination and um, exercises of uh, of breath and uh, uh, very different uh, kind of uh, of techniques with an ethical goal or understood as uh, ethical tools
0: got it okay yeah and i think that's an interesting point that proclus himself especially as the head of the academy in athens would have conceptualized himself as a platonist and is continuing primarily the platonic tradition and so on the one hand, I can understand why there would be maybe objections to labeling his type of Platonism as, as different than others rather than just seeing it as part of a continuous tradition of people who are following and, and imitating the works of Plato. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, Marinus saying that Proclus named his two favorite books as the Chaldean Oracles and then the Timaeus, certainly um, there is something distinctive about that in terms of it not just being the Timaeus but also being this later book that was written in the 2nd or the 3rd century that's also deeply influencing his philosophy and his personal views like to me there does become something then distinctive about that that might be different from you know a, a philosopher who's writing prior to the composition of the the Chaldean oracles in the 2nd or 3rd century yeah um
1: that that illustrates very well the the importance the the Chaldean oracles had for for proclus and for late platonists in in general uh, putting it at the same level so to speak with the uh, with plato's timaeus which is one of the most uh, uh, together with the parmenides is uh, one of the most appreciated of plato's di- dialogues or considered the most uh, the most important
0: yeah, I want to get into the Timaeus here in just a second. Um,
1: if but... I may add, add something uh, uh, briefly regarding uh, Platonism that may help us to conceptual conceptualize or uh, or contextualize uh, better. Um, for for these philosophers, um, the figure of Socrates is something aching aching to that of the of the Buddha. Socrates is seen as a, as an incarnation of of Apollo. And uh, the successors of, of the school are seen as uh, divine men and women because, because there are also important women philosophers in, in this school. Um, Plato himself is seen as a mystagogue and as a prophet, uh, uh, basically. So um, it is a notion about uh, philosophy uh, that it's uh, different from our common modern conception or, or misconception uh, uh, about it, um, and this uh, and this has to be considered regarding Greek philosophy in in general. Um, there's this uh, Greek scholar uh, Christos Evangelius who recently passed away, um, who um, basically says that we have to consider Greek philosophy as closer to the philosophy of India and China than to that of European uh, modern philosophy. Um, So um, that's that's an important part of the context um, to consider when we approach uh, these philosophers for whom mysticism and science do not... um, uh, I mean, can can be uh, they are seen as complementary. Can be taken necessarily
0: uh, uh, together. Sure, that's a good point. That there's more of a mystical component to some Greek philosophy, especially the Platonic school, than maybe we're used to conceptualizing in modern times. Where, um, what's the difference? There's a difference between like the con- continental philosophy versus the analytical analytical like usually the the more like scientific um strands of philosophy in modern times the analytical strands that gets sort of projected backwards into the ancient greek philosophers who then are uh, said to be like supremely rational and and they're coming to deductions about things using logic and and mathematics and things like that purely um but they in reality i mean part of your point is that there was also this um Much more mystical, sort of metaphysical tradition starting in Plato um, that isn't often recognized, but it's one of the strands that the Neoplatonists, you know, quote unquote Neoplatonists, the Platonists from the very later end of the Platonic tradition in Greece, like Proclus, really emphasizes this more mystical side of Plato, and especially some of his more mystical dialogues, such as the Timaeus, which are thought to as well as the myth of ur which are thought to convey um deeply um metaphysical or or myth mythic or almost like religious concepts or or insights about the nature of the cosmos
1: yeah what it's fascinating in, uh, about Proclus is that he emphasizes this aspect but uh, not uh, do, does not de- diminish the analytical rigorous logical aspect you have works of Proclus, like the elements of theology, which are very hardcore analytical uh, analysis and argumentations. Uh, um, he's a very systematic mind and has very um, complex works on science, on astronomy, for example. But then at the other side of the spectrum, you have his uh, theological hymns, the hymns he composes to, to the gods and and used in in his own uh, rituals, okay. and 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 perhaps we should also keep in mind that um, the conception of thought itself for the Greeks in the talking in the general, it's very different to to the moderns' conception. Um, the ancients used to differentiate be, between intellect and reason, a distinction still made in the medieval tradition. So there's uh, there's news. Um, this principle of of Sique, usually translated as intelligence or intellect, which um, to it belongs an activity of knowledge that it's superior to rational discursivity, which is noesis, and um, uh, it it uh, it is usually translated as intuition, but it's a form of uh, supra rational intuition it, it's a dynamic of of knowledge so their their own conception of reason and thought is far more complex than um than our modern reductive conception of thought uh, limited in its highest uh, expression to formal demonstration formal formal reasoning
0: got it that's a great point um. Before we move on from Proclus and give more background with the Platonic tradition, which I want to do, um, I did want to mention that so so we already mentioned in passing that there's, you know, Proclus is unique because um his student left us a, a biography of, of Proclus, where he writes about his life and he gives us quite a bit of biographical information about the person. And one of the things that's most interesting from an astrological standpoint about this biography. Um, is that at the very end of it, Marinus, Proclus's student, actually gives the, the birth chart of Proclus, um, which actually gives us his chart, which is unique um, and interesting because it's like we have the birth charts of other astrologers, um, such as for example um, Hephaestus of Thebes gives his birth chart, so does Meneto, and Valens seems to secretly use his birth chart throughout his his text as well. Um, but this is one of the first times, I think, that we have actually the birth chart of a very famous philosopher, where it's an actual chart that they use during their their lifetime, which is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, and it's pretty unique, as as you say, because um, we, you know, uh, Firmicus Maternus, uh, in his Mathesis, he gives a Plato's chart, for example. But um, apparently, it's not an actual chart. It's more of a Poetic, symbolic uh, chart of of, of sorts, um, right? It's like, a and hype that user. might oh, sorry, uh, and that may also be the case with with Proclus, uh, uh, by the way. But, um, however, the astronomical um, situation of, uh, um, of uh, the, the astronomical points uh, uh, expressed in in the chart might be more or less uh, uh, correct uh, in in an actual sense so um yeah it's a pretty unique example uh, in, interesting that he ends up this way um uh, referring to those lovers of virtue he says that um, m- might want to uh, to see this um uh, sort of celestial confirmation of all he has been showing us.
0: Yeah, let me sh- I'll just share the translation and this yeah. is from um I believe the scholar's name is Michael Edwards who wrote a book called Neoplatonic Saints where he translates exactly. the biography what was that?
1: Yes, no I, I said yes it's Michael Edwards.
0: Michael okay good. Mm-hmm. Um and he, he translates the biography of Proclus as well as the bi- biography of um Plotinus that was written by Porphyry so here it is for those listening to the audio version I'll just read it it says and this is towards the end of the biography it says but but so that the more erudite may be able to conjecture from the configuration of stars under which he was born that the choice dispensed to him did not fall among the last nor even among any in the middle but among the first and that's absolutely amazing phrase that we're going to come back to and I'll I'll continue on I will have to set out their positions as they were at the birth. Um, and the Okay, so then he gives and this is in the manuscripts, it says the Sun was in Aries, the Moon was in Gemini, Saturn in Taurus, Jupiter in Taurus, Mars in Sagittarius, Venus in Pisces, Mercury in Aquarius, mm-hmm. and the horoscope or the hour mark or the Ascendant in Aries. And it gives degrees and minutes for all of these. Um, which you, I won't you have more positions in the next page, oh, yeah, right. Sorry, that the it says the midheaven is in Capricorn at four degrees, the ascending node in Scorpio at twenty four. and um the preceding conjunction, the pre prenatal lunation basically in Aquarius at eight degrees. So it gives a bunch of positions for these planets. And here's a. I just made a very quick um, diagram that gives you the sign positions of that for those watching the video version. This is, okay, so this is what that chart would look like if we went with what the manuscript says. Um, and this doesn't match the degrees perfectly. I just put the planets in the signs. Um, and so there's, there's a little bit to talk about here because there's been a lot of debates about this chart and a lot of attempts to date the chart to figure out what the what the exact date is because just the chart positions itself are given in the texts and not Proclus's actual birth date so there's been attempts to like reconstruct this chart to figure out what the actual birth date of Proclus would have been um but it's led to some debates and some problems because for example one of the issues that you notice any astrologer or astronomer notices right away is that the Sun is in Aries, but Mercury is in Aquarius, which is astronomically impossible because usually Mercury cannot get more than one sign away from the Sun. So a lot of the scholars that have tried to date this chart have pointed out that 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 means that either the position given of Mercury is wrong and it's in the wrong sign in the text, or perhaps that the position of the Sun given is wrong and it's in the wrong sign of the text um and we can talk about that but i know you have you have a, a an opinion about this uh chart right well um yes it,
1: it has been pointed that some positions uh could not be astronomically correct um maybe if mercury were much uh, further into uh, into aquarius um then maybe because i think it can be 48 degrees apart Uh, from the sun. But uh, anyway. um, Venus can. uh, Venus. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, so, yeah, uh, there is debate regarding which could be the the correct uh, date of his birth. And there's also um, the acknowledgement that uh, the horoscope that that is the the ascendant and the midheaven, they are calculated for um, for a for roads, um, I mean not for his place of birth, but for the apparently for the place of birth of his family, to which he felt very connected. But uh, Proclus was born in Constantinople, in in uh, so it is not for that uh, uh, location. So it has problems. It has ast- astronomical problems and there are different speculations uh, about it. Um, However, just taken as uh, Marinus transmits us this horoscope, uh, I find it interesting uh, regarding the very little, uh, certainly, uh, that we know uh, about about Proclus. Um, uh, For example, regarding his hot, uh, sometimes bad temper, which uh, Marinus uh, recalls, which would make sense with this uh, Aries sun uh, ascendant. Um, but also that would make sense regarding this sort of um, solar characterization of of him that uh, Marinus transmits. Marinus is not the only source we have about Proclus' character and, and, and life. Damascus who knew him, um, also writes in his Philosophical History, where he uh, writes about many of the characters, both of the Athenian and Alexandrian school. He, he recounts some anecdotes about, about Proclus. So uh, I believe it more or less makes sense, this uh, uh, ascendant. And uh, it would place Venus on the 12th house, And um, we are told by Marinus. Well, well, we're not told by Marinus that this is uh, Damascus. We know that Proclus was about to get married with the daughter of a colleague uh, from the school in Alexandria, but uh, in the end, that did not happen. Um, uh, She married this woman. Married another another philosopher. Apparently, among other things, because Athena, in a dream, told Proclus that um, he belonged to, to, to her, so to speak, um, which is also interesting regarding the connection between Athena and Ares, by the way, um, and asked the philosopher to uh, remain chaste um, for the rest of his life and to dedicate uh, only to, to philosophy. So uh, I mean, it's it's your it's just m- mere speculations. There, there are um, uh, interesting um, and well-argumented uh, propositions of, of of an amended uh, um, date that would give uh, uh, instead of a sun in in Aries a sun in, in Aquarius. Uh, that and that might be the case, as, as I commented to you. It is not a matter I, I've being able to to dwell uh, deeply but um but I think it's interesting the the chart
0: as Marinus presents it all right so we're back I had a little noise interruption but so back to the birth chart um one thing I want to mention is just like I said there's been a long line of scholars over the past two centuries who have tried to reconstruct this birth chart um one of the most recent articles actually it's not that re- it's like 20 years old at this point but a uh, famous scholar of astrology and ancient astro- astronomy Alexander Jones wrote an article titled The Horoscope of Pro- Proclus and I am I do like his reconstruction from a from a textual standpoint I wanted to mention it um because one of the things that's pointed out by Jones and other um scholars is just that um the chart part of the issue with the chart could just be manuscript issues where you have to resolve this difference, this astronomical discrepancy if it's a real chart between the Sun and Mercury. And it could just mean that either Mercury shouldn't be in Aquarius and should be in Aries so that it's closer to the Sun, or the main reconstruction that people have shown that creates a correct astronomical chart is if the text is wrong and the Sun should actually be in Aquarius rather than in Aries. And it would create a chart that looks more like this. And what's interesting in fact is if you make that change from a textual standpoint, um, it does create a chart that's very, very close to an actual astronomical alignment that occurred on February 7th in the year 412 AD at about nine o'clock in the morning in um, Constantinople basically is where he would have been born, although the chart, as you said, was cast for Rhodes. But if we look at this chart that we have in front of us, it actually matches most of the basic um, considerations where it would put it would have a chart where Aries is rising. Um, the sun and Mercury are in Aquarius. Venus is at twenty four degrees of Aquarius as well, but it's retrograde. And that's probably part of what was tricky is even though the chart get it puts the sun at zero degrees of Pisces. Um, when planets go retrograde, sometimes there can be some issues with the calculations in ancient texts where they can be more liable to be off. Um, so the Moon would be in Gemini, um, Saturn and Jupiter were in Taurus, and the North Node was indeed in Scorpio, um, and Mars is at the very beginning of Capricorn, um, but not too far from Sagittarius, where it's said to be calculated in the chart, and Mars is a planet they, that they often had the most problems Getting the calculation correct. Um, so, this, though, theoretically could hypothetically be, at least according to Alexander Jones, the actual recalculated date of what his chart would have looked like in the tropical zodiac. So, um, yeah. And, and I do think it's interesting going along with what you're saying. If he was born with Aries rising, then he would have had at least tropically Aries rising with Mars and Capricorn in a day chart in the 10th house. um, And what Marinus says in the text is that he could be, that Proclus could be very direct. And if there was something good in a text, he would take it and expand on it. But if there's something that he didn't like, he would reject it sort mm-hmm. of out of hand very strongly, I think is what he says, right?
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay, so yeah, and, and that I,
0: would correspond. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of my friend, I had another a friend named Alan White who had a similar position in his birth chart um, with Aries rising and Capricorn placements, and he could be very gruff in his manner of presenting something um, which could be charming or could sometimes be a little off-putting depending on the context. Um, but anyway, so there's different debates debates around that, but that's one reconstruction about what the chart may have been. Um, I think the most important point that's interesting is just that his birth chart was included at all, and that Proclus um, knew his birth chart and may have drawn some things from it. It's also interesting that Marinus um, mentions a couple of things. One, he actually mentions elsewhere that there were eclipses that occurred um, in the year that Proclus died, and he actually connects that with the death of the philosopher. Which I thought was really notable and really striking, especially um, since I did a recent study of eclipses in history, and and we sort of demonstrated how both in the past as well as still in the present, um, occasionally they do have that association of like the death of major figures or the the end of one era and the beginning of another. Um, and so it's interesting to see his biographer specifically linking that in Proclus's life as well
1: yeah it's a very moving passage where he connects this couple of eclipses to the to the eclipse of 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 this uh, of his light uh, um that is of 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 this figure and also to not only individually but in in collective terms as you said as a
0: sort of a the end of a a period or or epoch yeah so in the text in Edward's translation he says Before the year of his death, there were portents such as an eclipse of the sun, so conspicuous that it became night by day, for a deep darkness descended and the stars appeared. This took place in Capricorn on its eastern center, and by that means the Ascendant by the eastern horizon. Um, The observers of the days have also noted another to occur after the completion of the first year. And that's really interesting because he's talking about an eclipse that was still coming up after his writing of the biography. Mm-hmm. And then it goes on to say: when commotions such as this are seen to occur in heaven, they are said to be significant of occurrences on earth. And we take them as portents of the deprivation and as if, as it were, the eclipse of the light of philosophy. That's so really. Beautiful and really moving and and interesting to hear his conceptualization of eclipses right there. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful passage.
1: Yeah, and and uh, and a passage that also highlights, um, wh- what it's sort of conceived as the, the the solar nature of 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 this figure of 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 Proclus.
0: Right. As, as an sure. iconic man of of sorts. Mm-hmm. Well, well, in a way, it's interesting because he was even more right than he could have thought. Um, I thought it was interesting in the biography as well that, or in Proclus's life, that initially, in terms of the succession of his school in Athens, he initially had selected another student to take over, but that student declined or, or didn't take over. So then, Marinus was selected to be Proclus's successor. But Proclus had hesitation selecting him because of the, the student having health problems. Um, but then, in, and then unfortunately, indeed, Marinus did die only a few years after Proclus. So, um, you know, his statement about the eclipses taking place at this time and this being like the end of an era was perhaps even more true than than even he knew at the time.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a good observation.
0: Yeah. So... All right. so going back to a statement though that was made that's incredibly interesting right before he introduced his birth chart, because this will take us back to Plato and into transitioning into another part of this discussion where we want to get more into the Platonic texts and how Proclus represents um, a a uniting of Platonism and astrology that's very unique and very striking. Um, At the beginning of introducing this horoscope, Marinus says, just to read it again, um, so that the more erudite may be able to conjecture from the configuration of the stars under which he was born that the choice dispensed to him did not fall among the last, nor even among any in the middle, but was among the first. I have set out their positions as they were at his birth. So This is an allusion to the myth of Ur, um, which listeners of the podcast should be familiar with because I talked about it pretty extensively in an episode, I think two episodes ago in an episode titled The Lot of Fortune and The Lot of Spirit and Astrology, where we talked about the myth of Ur from Plato where it was said that the souls before reincarnation are on the outskirts of the universe and that they cast lots. And then once they've cast a lot and chosen a number, they then have to pick a life, and that the the choice of the life is the souls, and then they are sort of incarnated after that point. And what's interesting is that, um, you know, in the Platonic dialogue itself, there's this ambiguity in Plato about whether it's meant to have any astrological implications or whether Plato's aware of astrology. Or whether Mesopotamian astrology at the time is influencing Plato to an extent. There's this ambiguity to that, and whether you, you know the myth of Ur was supposed to have any astrological implications or not. But here, centuries later, by the time of Proclus and Marinus, this is an example that some of the Platonists were very explicitly um, you know, connecting the myth of Ur and the choice of like choosing your life prior to incarnation to some extent with the birth chart then which then says something about the life that you're about to live which which I think is just really amazing yeah it is um and, and actually
1: um the dialogue refers that once uh, the lot has been chosen then the soul descends into incarnation when the appropriate revolutions of of the of the stars uh, are set and and he and 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 the soul descends to incarnation accompanied by a diamond which becomes the the administrator of of that uh, fate. But uh, there's a connection to the revolution of 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 the stars of of the planets in in heaven and not only in the Republic, but famously also in the Timaeus, which has been also one of the main philosophical references for the development of. Uh, astrological metaphysics or or philosophy
0: yeah let's talk about that so let's situate things so we're going back here to the very beginning of this entire philosophical tradition that proclus was a part of which is starting with the philosopher plato who lived in the fourth century bc and set up a school for philosophy in athens right exactly yes okay however plato uh,
1: or the whole of the Greek philosophers do not see their work as uh, beginning completely with them. The 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 Greeks uh, like Aristotle talk about the philosophy of the Persians or the philosophy of the Egyptians. That is, Greeks see themselves as transmitting or receiving knowledge or or traditions of wisdom, which they pride themselves of. Uh, of uh, give them giving them uh, a, a better shape, so to speak, but they acknowledge that um, uh, the the wisdom they're expressing expressing has a far older uh, lineage. And um, in the case of Plato, if if we take the dialogue of the pinomies which might be from Plato or from an uh, a, a very close immediate uh, um, student of his, there's a direct reference to the Assyrians, for example, and this um, pairing after the Assyrian manner of the gods with the, with the planets. So th- there are different points of reference where uh, you, you can see this transmission from ancient Mesopotamian cultures to to the Greeks, uh, their mathematics, their astronomy, which w- of course also
0: includes their, their astrology. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, you know, the first, the earliest surviving birth chart that we know of from Mesopotamia dates to 410 BCE. And that's roughly contemporaneous with Plato and the, the earlier part of Plato's life. Um, Plato's time frame was he was born around 428 BC um and he died in 348 BC so if the first birth chart or at least the earliest surviving birth charts date to 410 then that concept of natal astrology in some at least some basic form already existed then essentially in Plato's lifetime so he very well could have been familiar with or could have had some exposure to it and because the full emergence of hellenistic astrology And which uses the Ascendant and houses and aspects and everything else because that doesn't really emerge until like 100 BCE, which is a few centuries later, I had often sided with the scholars who tended to downplay Plato's possible familiarity with Mesopotamian astrology, things like that but recently in in looking through some of this and like reanalyzing some things or reading an article that Robin Waterfield wrote in Culture and Cosmos years ago about right. early greek exposure to an awareness of astrology i'm starting to realize that um you know the greeks may have had exposure and familiarity to Mesopotamian astrology much earlier than I realized and that it was already starting to come into their consciousness by the time of Plato and Aristotle and, and their successors. And that in fact, there's a really interesting reference to astrology in the Timaeus itself potentially, which while it has historically been rejected or negated as a reference to astrology, Um, Proclus himself is one of the people who retains this reference to astrology and and mentions it quite explicitly. Um, So I want to get to that, but maybe first before we do that, I've talked about the the myth of Ur in the previous episode and we can go more into that, but something I haven't talked about that's extremely important at all is the Timaeus, which Proclus said was one of his favorite books. So I think maybe we should talk about the Timaeus right now, talk about what it does and what it contains and then how that it ended up influencing potentially the later astrological tradition. So what what is the Timaeus? The Timaeus is a dialogue uh about the creation of the cosmos basically
1: where where Plato exposes what we would call his cosmology. A cosmology that cannot be separated from from metaphysics. Um since the, the cosmos itself is regarded as a sort of metaphysical image of its spiritual principles. So uh, it is a dialogue that uh, was to become very influential also in the development of theological conceptions about God as the creator of, of the world, since Plato presents there a figure called the Demiurge, which is the God that fabricates the cosmos. Which is, isn't which is not the first God uh, it must be said it is only a, a creator God um which with the help of uh what are called younger gods a reference to the planets um conceives and ordains uh, arranges the, uh, the whole of cosmic uh, creation uh, to this end first, he creates soul the soul of the cosmos and then the particular souls and in their very creation they share uh, particular souls uh and and a structural identity with the soul of the world with of the cosmos which is composed of the planetary spheres and, and the sphere of the of the constellations so From there, there's a very uh, fundamental analogy between uh, the revolution of the stars and the life of soul, um, of particular souls, of the souls that incarnate. Uh, Like Plotinus would later say, um, the the soul of the cosmos is like the um, older sister of the particular soul, so they are they are kindred, they are, they are related uh, uh, essentially. And uh, it is in this dialogue uh, actually that Plato relates philosophy to the practice of assimilating the revolutions of the particular soul, the the, the cycles of our experience with the cycles of, of the planets. So um, it is it is a dialogue where it is narrated how, this Demiurge or this uh, uh, creator God fabricates uh, the world soul and, and uh, after this, the cosmos is created, included the, um, the human being, which is regarded as a microcosm. This um, famous notion originates uh, uh, here uh, in this dialogue of, of Plato, this notion that the human being um, is uh, a, a small cosmos, like a small compendium of the whole cosmos, and the cosmos in a way is like a big human being. They mirror each other. They are uh, um, structurally analogous. So um right. It is and a very uh, it's a very big dialogue uh, of Plato in the sense that uh, it um narrates, the origin of of our our world, and the place a human being has in this world, and how the human being is intimately connected with the order of the of the whole cosmos, especially with the stars.
0: Right. One of the most core, most important things I think about the dialogue for me, and the things that may have been influential, is that Plato um, outlines the idea that the cosmos, the entire cosmos itself is a living entity that has a body, which is the, the physical universe that we can see, but that it also has a soul that is, um, uh, that inhabits the entire body and is, is established through the entirety of the cosmos that makes it um, alive and sentient in some way? It is a unified totality imbued with, with, with soul.
1: Uh, so it is alive. It's an intelligent being, and not only that, uh, it is divine in in some sense. So it's an extraordinary um, conception of uh, of the cosmos, as a living organism.
0: Right. And here's a quote from water Robin Waterfield's translation of the Timaeus. It says, "This world of ours was made in truth by God as a living being. Endowed thanks to his providence with soul and intelligence. So it's like just that conceptualization in and of itself is different and is unique and is like a, from a modern perspective, you know, a much different conceptualization of what the universe is, where from a modern scientific, especially from the established like scientism standpoint, the universe is just seen as this dead, inert, thing that we've just find ourselves in, and that we're sort of the, the only intelligence in it, but that the universe itself is this passive sort of not alive thing. But in this ancient conceptualization from Plato that then ran through and influenced a number of subsequent philosophies and religious traditions, um, just as we are individual beings that have like a body and a soul and intelligence and consciousness, that um, we're mirrored by, or that we are just mirroring the universe itself, which we're inside of or are a part of, which also is an is a entity that is alive and conscious and has intelligence and soul and intellect as well.
1: Exactly. It's, uh, it's a radically different conception of the relationship between human beings, the cosmos and, and divinity than that of, uh, of of the standard modern um, <clears throat> views it it um and it also um uh, teaches regarding a prob a, a notion of providence of or or caring on the part of divinity and the cosmos regarding the the human being so um it's a caring uh, cosmos uh, in in a way and um a a living intelligent beautiful uh divine creature that uh, uh regarding which we are created as an
0: as an image in in a way right and um so that's really important and what's interesting is i found a Well, for one, one of the points that you're bringing up is that um, then it creates a different situation as well, because if the universe is alive and was constructed intentionally, then it opens up these broader ideas of like providence and providential care on the part of the gods and things like that. Um, But something that I found that's interesting is I found a quote at one point um, from a later, I think, Christian author who refers to the views of astrologers at one point, but he, he does so negatively. Um, but here's the quote: He says they, the essentially the Chaldeans or the astrologers, glorified the visible existence and had no conception of what was invisible and intelligible. But in exploring the order in numbers and the sympathy between heaven and earth. They supposed that the cosmos itself was God, thereby unlawfully likening what has come into existence to the one who made it, who had made it. So I thought this was really interesting because this is an ancient author saying that at least some astrologers um, were conceptualizing the cosmos itself as God and as a living entity, just in the same way that the that the Timaeus is outlining this conceptualization of the cosmos itself as being a god and being a living entity so that in some way the Timaeus may have influenced later um, philosophical traditions, including the conceptualization of astrology that took that idea seriously. Um, And I think that's really important and interesting. And as a matter of fact, we see other traces of that where, for example, in the summary of the text of Antiochus of Athens, the astrologer, from the maybe the first or second century, at one point when he starts talking about the Thema Mundi, or the mythical birth chart for the the cosmos, um, he actually refers to it as the chart of God. So that the astrologers may have explicitly also conceptualized the Thema Mundi itself as the birth chart of God, and as this like idealized birth chart in the same way that each individual human also has a birth chart.
1: Yeah, that that was Philo of Alexandria. It's a a Jewish uh, philosopher who, right. on, on the other side, um, integrates many of Plato's um, uh, arguments and, and, and expositions. Uh, however, he's uh, uh, evident, evidently not very sympathetic to to, to astrology. Mm-hmm. So, um, I was thinking also about Firmicus Mater- Maternus, who uh, clearly knows about Plotinus and Porphyry and has read them and uh and in a way um or, or 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 in part at least um it's it's present in his thought about astrology as he uh writes on, on the mathesis so um yes there's there's there seems to be this constant uh dialogue between the between the the, the traditions
0: um yeah and some of Firmicus's, is he's being informed by um hermetic hermeticism in the corpus hermeticum which was deeply influenced by plato and the Timaeus uh in terms of especially some of those views about the cosmos being a living entity right yeah he he
1: explicitly refers to Plotinus and Porphyry and and, and to Plato but also to Nekepso and Petosiris and uh um and Hermes and uh, um, his, um, he he talks little about philosophy because he's writing a manual a technical manual on astrology but the few conceptions presented here and there are very much in line with Platonism and hermeticism
0: yeah and i i think this is really important because astrology oftentimes in history is treated as this weird thing that is um you know occult or is is separate from, from science and philosophy and everything else. But in fact, I think the astrologers, especially in the early Hellenistic tradition, were very much actively involved in a dialogue with ancient philosophy. And while ancient philosophers did not always necessarily believe in astrology or endorse it or integrate it into their philosophy, um, many of the astrologers themselves, I think, were influenced by some of the philosophical in- undercurrents that were going on during those time frames, and some of the things that were popular, which in some earlier eras are going to be things like the Timaeus and the huge impact that it had on on many different philosophies and religions. Or in other areas, you see reflections like the popularity of Stoicism with the astrologers of the first and second century. Um, yeah but but astrology i think oftentimes isn't treated in the history of philosophy but it but it should be because um it's sometimes representing an applied version of some of the metaphysics that we see in uh in philosophers like plato
1: yeah and and i think it has to do with the uh, reductive conception of astrology as something regarding only a, a, a technique to interpret charts when in a wider sense, uh, it is a vision about the relationship between divinity, the cosmos, and and the human being that is shared by philosophers, um, scientists, uh, mystics, uh, um, doctors or or, or medics, um, where it, it is conceived that there's a... Dynamic intimate relationship between the heavens and, and and the earth. So, in in this wider sense, um, for the Hellenists, Hellenism being a, a universalist uh, project, there's a, a universalism that uh, motivates uh, uh, or present or that articulates Hellenism. Uh, in this wider sense, astrology, um, so to speak, answers to to the needs. Of this universalism, in in the sense that uh, the heavens are seen as a sort of um, a, a, a temple shared by all human beings. Well, the the cosmos is a temple. The heavens are the altar of this temple, and in this altar are found the statues of the gods. That is the planets, and different cultures can relate their different gods to the different planets. So. Um, there's no sense if, if the goddess you call Aphrodite and that we call Venus, and over there you call her Ishtar, and uh, uh, more over there, uh, Anahita, and so on. And we more or less agree that it, it uh, functions an, an, an analog, um, it, it serves like an, an analogical function, this this principle. Uh, that is related to the same planet. There's no need for us to argue which representation is the true, the true one or the or the correct one. So th- this can um, be used towards uh, what is was what it was um, conceived as a symphony of of traditions, a harmony or concordance between the different uh, the different cultures. So. Um, Maybe this is the, the the wider sense in which we can culturally understand the, the presence and importance of of astrology, a paradigm. Uh, I repeat, shared by philosophers, scientists, magicians, mystics, uh, um, doctors, and,
0: and and so on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so going back to the Timaeus, other points that are important from it. Um, as you mentioned, the planets themselves were conceptualized as being living beings with souls and being gods essentially and being referred to at one point as the younger gods. Mm -hmm. Um, So he also mentions in the Timaeus the concept of all the planets returning to their original positions and he calls it the perfect year and this started a long tradition of, of discussions about that concept. Um, Elsewhere, he says that the fixed stars are gods which rotate in the same place and think the same thoughts about the same things eternally, Um, that each soul is assigned to a star and that in the dialogue in the Timaeus, God tells the souls the quote-unquote laws of their destinies and that the first incarnation will be the same for all um so it goes into this concept of of reincarnation and um what happens when a person lives justly versus when a person lives unjustly um and that eventually any soul that lives life well will then return to the star that they've been paired with where they'll live a blessed life um so there's all sorts of of stellar conceptualizations of things throughout this dialogue and that's one of the reasons why it would have had a major impact later on later conceptualizations of astrology yes um there's a link in
1: this text between uh, the, the lives we live our, our souls and the laws of the of, of the cosmos uh the cosmos as an intelligent order being um functions according to to a, a divine law so um being uh, an eternal cosmos that has no temporal beginning or end and this is important also to to underlie underline um because it means that time is uh, conceived as a cyclical and so our lives as a cycle of of incarnations were depending um of the decisions we make in subsequent incarnations that these results will um this will have uh results uh, according to uh, a cosmic law so um certainly for these philosophers there's uh, um, it is important the notion of of reincarnation but all these cycles of incarnation um are related to the to the Stars to the planets our, all our experience and uh the consequences of, of the decisions we we make are all related to the cycles of of the Stars
0: right and so um at one point in the Timaeus God hands over the task of forming the mortal bodies of man to the younger gods which are implied to be the planets um, and it says, quote, "He left it up to them to govern and steer every mortal creature as best they could, so that each one would be as noble and good as it might be, apart from any self-caused evils. And, you know, this when taken together with the um, myth of Ur in the Republic and Plato's other important dialogue, where the souls prior to incarnation, choose lives and then are incarnated and that the, the three fates are specifically associated with um, the different spheres of the cosmos, including the spheres of the planets. Um, this later became in subsequent centuries more concretely a doctrine where the planets were explicitly associated with fate, um, especially by the time of the Corpus Hermeticum and the very first Book of the Corpus Hermeticum, um, which is called the Poemandres, where um, the planets were sp- explicitly said to be in charge of fate um, and to be like the governors or 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 I forget the term that it used that the planets are the instruments of fate. I think at one point a phrase is used like that. Um, so, and this led to what was eventually a common doctrine that was like a a reconciliation between astrology and free will at some point and the notion that the planets rule over our fate and our bodies, but that there may be some element of choice that's still left that's up to us in terms of free will. Um, But then it was debated, I think, whether this choice was something that happened within our lives and in terms of our individual choices or if the choice was something that was made prior to birth in terms of prior to reincarnation the notion of like which life you chose to live
1: yeah it's a, it's a complex um and, and view but um the, the point you made i think it's important that the, the planets rule over uh our bodies so um there's some room left for for soul to freely uh, operate because essentially um uh, from it, it given its uh, its nature it is somehow above the, uh, the the working of of the planets however if the soul lives subordinated to the body then soul is subordinated to the ordination of of fate even when her origin uh, goes beyond, uh, beyond that. Um, uh, that is clearly uh, for, for this tradition, um, there's, no, there's no conflict between uh, astrology and, uh, and a notion of liberty, of, of, of freedom for, for the soul, which is a, a moral freedom, an ethical freedom. Uh, that that's what is referred and uh, as I understand uh, related to the choices we make uh, in our lives in, in in our incarnation that is
0: right um yeah so that's really important uh because in this tradition it's like you have the possibility going each way where it's like you could see how some people could take the the Timaeus and the myth of Ur and could, it could lead to a more um, fate-oriented perspective where you you could think that the real choice happens prior to birth and then you choose your life, you get your birth chart assigned to you and then you live that out and that's pretty much your fate and that that's all-encompassing in terms of even your choices within your life are partially dictated by that in addition to your circumstances. And there were certainly some astrologers like Valens that did take that more stoic Um, Mm -hmm. conceptualization where everything is predetermined once you're born. Um, But then in the Platonic tradition and some of the other ones connected with that or influenced with that, like um, Hermeticism and and some of the other related traditions, there was really this notion that it's the body that in the physical incarnation that's under the control of of fate and of the planets in the birth chart, but that there may be a way through different means like philosophy and living virtuously as well as through theurgy or other things like that, that you could somehow your soul could rise above it and exercise a greater level of choice. Or in other instances, like with Plotinus and Iamblichus's famous debate, or, or sorry, with Porphyry and Iamblichus's famous debate, Porphyry seems to say that the goal of identifying Using astrological techniques to determine the master of the nativity and to identify a person's guardian daimon, which is the spirit that was assigned to you prior to birth to help um, ensure that you fulfill your destiny, that if you could use the astrological techniques to identify that, that that would somehow allow you to free yourself from your fate in some way. And Yomblukus and Porphyry have a famous debate over whether that makes sense or not
1: yeah they they debate about this however they both coincide we may say that um we are not totally determined by by fate that developing through philosophy and um and ritual more importantly for jan because uh, for porphyry it's not that important the place of of ritual but um by living virtuously, as as you well mentioned, and also uh, recurring to to theurgy, it may be possible to negotiate fate, we, we may say. Um, the, the the notion about uh, fate is that fate is conditional. That is, it is not completely fixed or or determined. If this, then this, but if that, then this uh this other thing so it is not something completely uh predetermined um I mean they are not naive they understand the power of the emotions and the and the body in our relationship with uh, with existence um and how we um naturally uh, sort of subordinate ourselves uh, to the body As a matter of fact, in the Timaeus, Plato relates that um, incarnation for the soul is is traumatic. Um, Given uh, all the care and attention that the body demands, soul uh, loses consciousness of itself, uh, forgets uh, itself, and identifies only as body. And then philosophy is a method for soul to uh, recover, not only theoretically remember, but to actually recover its, its true nature. Um, and in that sense, it may be able to um, transcend faith or not be uh, totally determined uh, by it. So it can record to ritual, but that has to necessarily be accompanied by a virtuous way of living because there's no point of doing ritual if there's not some sort of also internal ethical uh, alignment so to speak Um, but the the point is that uh, fate is, is is negotiable and and i think that uh puts platonism in line even with the mesopotamian traditions where because right, it is possible to negotiate with the gods uh, uh fate
0: right because in the mesopotamian tradition they would which predates basically greek astrology by hundreds of years they would um find out what the astrological indications were but then they would try to use propitiation rituals in order to avert them um, including sometimes going so far as to do things like the substitute king ritual where if there was a really bad looking eclipse that indicated the death of the king they would like swap out the king with a prisoner or or somebody for a period of time until the negative indication had passed and then they would reinstate the old king and continue on as normal so that there was more of an idea of things being negotiable in the mesopotamian tradition i'm really glad you brought that up because that becomes a very strong um trend in Platonism especially in like middle Platonism forward where they took um, some statements i think in the i think it was in the Timaeus then to interpret it to mean that fate has the position of a law in the cosmos so that if you take this action then this outcome will necessarily result but that the choice is up, still up to you in terms of making the, the decision initially and then dealing with the consequences, but it's not something that's seen as totally encompassing in that it's necessitating you or forcing you to make certain choices as well, that there's still some element left up to choice. Um, I actually wanted to le- read a common or a famous definition of that interpretation of fate um, from the text of… Al-Kinous, um translated by John Dillon, where it gives a definition and he says, but fate consists rather in the fact that if a soul chooses a type of life and performs such and such actions, then such and such consequences will follow for it. The soul therefore owns no master, and it is in its power to act or not, and it is not compelled to do this, but the consequences of the action will be fulfilled in accordance with fate so it's like fate is the fulfillment or the consequences of the action in the sense that fate is like a law just like there's other laws in societies like if you you know steal from somebody then you'll go to jail or you know what have you
1: yeah it, there's a law but it's not a mechanic blind law but uh, a law that somehow seems to uh, integrate or take into account our actions and our decisions and, and options. Um, Plotinus uses a, a very interesting image of, uh, regarding this cosmic law uh, assimilated to uh, uh, a script that uh, the actors in the theater uh, have to um, go by so there there's a script written and you're giving you're given a character and that you cannot change it you cannot change the the script but um our liberty lies uh like like the actor in our capacity to interpret well or poorly our uh our character so there, there's a coincidence between law and, and necessity and an and an ordainment, and at the same time, our our freedom of of, of choice. So we would have a, a, a freedom analog to that of the of the actors, whom they cannot change the character they're playing or or the script, but there's some room for um for improvisation, for creativity. There's there, there's room for um freedom in how well one uh, interprets its own uh, character
0: see that's really interesting to me because it's like valens uses the same analogy of of you know we're all actors in a play and our we have our fate we have our birth charts and so we have to play out the script of our life and that for valens as somebody that's more influenced by stoicism where fate is total that fate is both Your circumstances and your your external circumstances are fated or predetermined, but also even your choices that arise from within you are predetermined as well in that stoic conceptualization. Um, But I feel like in using that analogy, Plotinus and some of the other Neoplatonists had a little bit more of a, a malleable view of fate than that, where they probably didn't think everything was was predetermined in this to the same extent that somebody like valens would right
1: yeah yeah i think so and even uh, post plotinian philosophers um would emphasize more that capacity of, of of freedom or or creativity which would lie uh pretty much in the soul's capacity of identification with the divine in in adopting a uh, divine way of living of, of, of sorts uh, uh, for for the soul and and then there's more uh, possibility to to express uh, that uh, freedom or creativity as incarnated souls. So the the, the, the Theurgist's sorry the, the theurgist, um goal is to become like an extension of of the gods or or an incarnation in, in a way. Um, many of these uh, leading philosophers were regarded as divine human beings. They, they have been compared to the notion of the bodhisattvas in in Buddhism, as uh, incarnated Buddhas who incarnate in order to guide other souls
0: to to freedom. Right. I think marinus says at one point that Proclus himself believed he was the reincarnation of an earlier pythagorean philosopher
1: yeah of uh, nicomachus yeah nicomachus of gerasa uh, Proclus expresses that he's uh the reincarnation of this uh, pythagorean
0: so that's really interesting to me and important because it's like um we're used to thinking that it's the eastern philosophical and religious traditions from maybe i shouldn't say eastern but just in india that ideas of karma and reincarnation originate. And and while that's that's true and that obviously does originate indigenously there, it's interesting to see that there was also a tradition of reincarnation in the West, in Western philosophy that runs through Plato and runs through subsequent um, philosophers in the Platonic tradition. But here we would also see that to the extent that Proclus integrated astrology into his philosophy or believed in astrology or even practiced it to some extent, um, that we're seeing a, a very early example then from the fifth century of an astrologer who also believed in reincarnation.
1: Yeah, it's, it's an, uh, an idea that it's present in Greek thought since its beginnings. Uh, in Greek culture, it's associated with Orphism and uh, there's a, a link between Orphism and, Pythagor- and Pythagoras or Pythagoreas-Pythagorism. Pythag- uh, um, and from there, uh, it, it is present in, in Plato and, and many other Greek philosophers, not in all, but uh, in many uh, of them. And uh, so certainly it, it is there uh, also. I'm I'm not sure... If the Greeks would see themselves as Westerners, because they they, they don't talk uh, this way, it is more uh, ourselves who categorize them uh, uh, like that. But um, but uh, as you will say, it's it's certainly interesting that it it's there in what it's um, in, in what it's usually called the uh, the the cradle of Western civil civilization.
0: Yeah, well and it's like there's good historical reasons for that because um I think notions of reincarnation you know in the Hellenistic tradition you run into an issue because most of the texts that survive are technical manuals on how to do astrology and unfortunately we don't have a lot of manuals or discussions from those astrologers about what their philosophy is so we have to infer and we have to pick up bits and pieces from little remarks made in passing about what their philosophy was when it comes to astrologers like Valens or or Ptolemy or uh, Manilius or others. And then certainly in the medieval astrological tradition and, and subsequent traditions, ideas of reincarnation were not really that prominent or not really that common, probably partially due to the influence of, of Christianity from, from that point forward, especially from the fifth century onward where a lot of the earlier pagan ideas really dropped out of the tradition in some ways um, so that when reincarnation did become popular in the context of astrology in the 20th century, it was largely due to the influence of theosophy, which was picking up some of those ideas from Indian philosophy and religion of karma of and reincarnation really consciously and really deliberately. Um, but here we see earlier. Sort of instances of that sort of surfacing that were were independent uh, i think of the indian tradition yes um
1: in in the greek world philosophy and astrology developed uh, together um i mean the the very term astrology is a philosophical uh, greek term um astro astro lo- logos astro uh, uh, logos which means uh, the- what? well uh, logos is a very complex uh, greek term right uh, which can refer to to reason to language to measure to um a foundation uh, to knowledge uh, i mean it, it has many registers but um uh, 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 and well uh, and of course astro re- refers to the to the stars in greek but uh, the the um, the first greek philosophers talk about a logos or uh, which can also be uh, translated as log um, uh, about a logos that estru- structures the whole of reality um that gives it order uh, shape uh, meaning and these logos from the very beginning is usually related to the stars uh, in some way or uh, or another so maybe up to a point, uh, I believe that um, if, if we don't have that much evidence of the philosophy of the astrologers, as you mentioned, it's because it was already there. There was Plato and the Stoics and, and Aristotelian philosophy, and it, it was already there. Because in a way, astrology, at least from the philosophical point of view, it is philosophy applied. It is practical philosophy um metaphysics uh, concepts put into into action so so to speak as well as an applied uh, theology um and then uh, things started to change after the advent of uh, of Christianity in the uh, in the western
0: in, in the west right so you know this conceptualization of the cosmos as a god itself became um, sort of antithetical to Christian theology, where God is like a separate um, entity that's kind of like out there versus something that we're a part of or like living inside of.
1: Yeah, maybe one of the main differences between the Christian view and what we may call the pagan pagan view. And, and we may do so recalling that pagans was the name given to the Hellenists uh, by the Christians, uh, right. firstly as a pejorative uh, term, to uh, a way to denigrate them. But um, the, the main difference, is uh, may, may, we may say, is uh, how the relationship between uh, the divine and, and nature and, and the cosmos and the human being is contemplated um for for the greeks the gods are the roots of of nature there there's no uh definite divide between nature uh between cosmos and 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 the divine um as as you find later in the religious uh, uh models um, generalizing a lot of course but uh, we may say that's pretty much the 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 main um the main difference and um the planets, the world, uh, are viewed as somehow divine, and the divine is also um, viewed as somehow residing in the human being as, as
0: part of our essential nature. Right. So, So that really... And that's why Proclus then becomes the last... Major representative in some ways of that philosophical and religious tradition that's associated with the earlier, quote unquote, like pagan culture, mm-hmm. um, and that astrology by the time of Proclus is already in decline because it's starting to be outlawed um, in the Roman Empire by the different Christian emperors, um, starting essentially with Constantine in the in the early to mid fourth century, but really ramping up after that point, so that you can actually see. Even an in individual astrologer's lives, like Firmicus Maternus, writing this major treatise on astrology, um, where he's drawing on all these early astrological texts, but he's also influenced by Neoplatonism as well as Hermeticism. But then, at some point later in his life, seems to have converted to Christianity, and then he wrote a, a Christian, a very harsh Christian polemical text attacking the earlier pagan mystery religions, including attacking the Neoplatonists like Porphyry who he had spoken of so fondly years earlier in his, his mm. astrological text. So we can see this like shift starting to take place. And, and that's one of the reasons by the time you get to Proclus who is a century after that, a century after Firmicus Maternus, that um, things are really starting to get more difficult for astrology. But it's also interesting because it's at that point that astrology also starts to make the shift that allows it to survive, which is um, Ptolemy's works both on astronomy as well as astrology become very popular by the time of Proclus. And One of the good things about Ptolemy's works is it, um, it reframed astrology in a more Aristotelian context as a natural science that works as a result of the planets. Um, emitting uh, change to the sublunary world, to the Earth, and and that astrology works basically as a result of the influence of the planets rather than through a result of other concepts like the universe being alive and sentient or reincarnation happening and people choosing lives prior to birth or things like that. And um, the ascendancy of Ptolemy's more naturalistic and causal model of astrology is part of what allowed it to survive in the Middle Ages, because then um, astrologers were able to make compromises and say that astrology works because of the influence of the planets on our environment and on the body, but that it doesn't influence the soul. And to the extent that that was argued, then astrology was still seen as somewhat permissible even in a Christian context. Whereas if it intruded on the soul or on the free will. That was always the point where astrology became very contentious with Christian theology.
1: Yes, there's a change of uh, discourse towards a naturalistic uh, explanation instead of referring to the diamonds as intermediaries of the gods, as uh, the agencies of the of the planets, uh, the the ones that um transmit or carry according to Hermetism, the the influence of of, of the stars um however this this nat- uh, this naturalistic uh discourse it is also present uh in in plato in in aristotle um by the, way, the 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 term astrology it's already used by some of the presocratics and then you also find it in uh in aristotle uh or in plato as referring to the to us to the science of the effects of the heavens on the on the earth in in a more neutral um uh, presentation <clears throat> And, and by the way, uh, hermetism is also re- regarding what what we mentioned before, of um, the correlation between astrology and philosophy. Uh, in the case of hermetism, there is uh, there are preserved both technical texts and philosophical texts, and the philosophical texts they are all composed by classical Greek argumentations, metaphysical and cosmological. Uh, argumentations so um yes it's a notable uh change in the in discourse in in the case of uh Ptolemy and um Proclus would embrace both the naturalistic discourse and the mythical uh discourse as complementary which i, I think is also interesting
0: yeah that's really interesting and you mentioned another point that would have been contentious as well, which is that in the astrological tradition, um, they were drawing on an earlier idea that there were that the universe is filled by diamonds or spirits that act as like intermediary entities between humans on earth and and the gods um sort of out there in the in the sky or in the cosmos or in the celestial realm. And um, in that tradition, there were like good daimons or good spirits that were helpful or benevolent entities, and there were also bad daimons that were um, negative or or sometimes malevolent entities. And in the Corpus Hermeticum, we hear a lot about daimons and how they're um, sort of acting as the intermediaries sometimes for the planets themselves, or for for or from the decans or other celestial things like that. And even in Proclus, um, and by the time of Proclus and throughout the Platonic tradition, we have this very prominent um, notion that goes all the way back to Plato in the myth of Ur of each individual being assigned a personal guardian daemon um, right before birth, once you've chosen your life, and that that daemon is supposed to help, uh, is supposed to follow you and to help ensure that you carry out the plan which is your destiny. Um, and I thought it was really interesting in Marinus's biography of P- Proclus, at one point he says that Proclus's guardian Daimon um, contrived a pretext in order to get him to go somewhere very early in his life. So that there was this notion of Proclus being guarded by this guardian spirit who's leading him in a certain direction in order to help him fulfill his destiny.
1: Yes, and and that diamond appears to be uh, Athena. It is not explicitly stated um, but in his hymn to Athena, Proclus expresses that he belongs uh, uh, to her. And there are some other hints that may signify this. Um, but but certainly the relationship with the diamond, it's uh, fundamental in platonic philosophy. The, the diamond is presented in the Republic, but also in the Timaeus. there are important passages about the, the diamond and in the Fido. Um, we could even characterize platonic philosophy as uh, a practice that uh, facilitates the... Natural uh, diamonds pedagogy for uh, to the soul. Uh, The the diamond is the natural pedagogue or or teacher uh, of of the soul. There is an intimate relationship conceived between diamond and uh, and soul. And the function of the diamond is to guide us uh, so that we can uh, complete our destiny. uh, To have a good life, that is to be happy. Because uh, that's how the end of philosophy is characterized. Philosophy is not understood as the professional ac- activity, as a professional activity, but as the uh, vocation to become a full human being. Um, happiness being the end uh, or the goal of philosophy, for example, for, for Aristotle. And how does he define uh, happiness as self-realization? as having a good diamond because uh, uh, you you know the term for uh happiness eudaimonia um, refers to having a good destiny or a good diamond because diamond can be translated as 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 destiny so um in that sense astrology is um used as a helpful tool to uh to relate with with the diamond, um, because even while there are several diamonds uh, to which the human soul is related, um, there is one which is the custodian diamond, the individual or particular uh, uh, diamond of uh, of the soul. Um, These metaphysic, metaphysical um, conceptions are. Uh, are um grounded on unity so there's a um even though there can be talk about good and bad diamonds it it is not in terms of of a classical dualism and and that is also uh, something we can gather from the corpus hermeticum uh it is as if the diamond it is uh good with the good ones and and bad with the with the bad ones. So there can be certainly um, diamonds which are bad, but that means are diamonds who are um, working for faith, inflicting some kind of penalty to to the soul, um, which it is a, a process of purification for, for that soul. So they are not working against the good, but uh, they're working for uh, for the law or for that plant, so it's not the good and bad diamonds as in the classical Hollywood movie, right? Um, it is a, a monistic uh, um uh, uh, view of 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 reality of of the world, and and certainly uh, for Platonist to learn to cultivate uh, the relationship uh, uh with the diamond is fundamental, or uh, that's the aim of of philosophy because it it is the diamond which um it, it is a creature that or being that cares for for the soul for its uh self realization and its completion of that destiny which uh chose before incarnation
0: right there's this um tension in plato i think already that you see a lot in the later tradition where on the one hand, in the Timaeus at one point, it is conceptualized. the daimon is conceptualized as something that's part of the soul where he says that the daimon is like the rational part of the soul that's residing in the head and that it's the most authoritative aspect within us and that this rational soul guides us towards good and helps us to achieve happiness like you said. And that's like right in the Timaeus, but it's more of like an internalized entity whereas Elsewhere, um, in other dialogues like *The Republic*, the daimon is depicted almost more like a distinct external entity, external. as as like a guardian angel or a spiritual guide that's accompanying each soul, and that the daimon, from that standpoint, influences our choices and leads us on our journey. And so, so in Plato, it's like we get this um, tension already between whether the daimon is this. External thing that's external to us, or whether it is simply a part of this. So this is something I talked about in the last episode with lots that becomes a real issue in terms of the astrology, because I think, um, you know, looking at like Marcus Aurelius, for example, in the second century, where his his Stoicism is very similar to Valens, Marcus seems to conceptualize the Daimon as the internal. Um, controlling center that is just a part of us and therefore is is reflecting our personality and our choices in some ways. And in some ways, the astrology I, I sometimes think kind of mirrors that as well when the astrologers talk about the lot of spirit and then they say that it, it signifies in the chart the soul and the mind and the intellect and the choices or actions that the native takes. That sounds like more of an internalized conceptualization of the diamond. Um, but then, you know, there's other ways in which Daimon is conceptualized in astrology as well. When they talk about the eleventh house being the place of good Daimon that's associated with friends and good things that happen in the native's life, like hopes for the future, whereas the twelfth house is associated with the bad Daimon and with negative things that happen to the native, like having enemies or loss or other things like that.
1: Yeah. Um... I forgot to mention the, the symposium uh, also as a very important dialogue regarding the nature of the, the diamond for, for Plato, for Platonic philosophy. Um, however, I think that in the Timeus there is room also for an understanding of the diamond as external to soul, because um, it is specifically related to nous uh, there, uh, the, the diamond and nous is the principle of soul, but it goes beyond soul. it It, it is on an ontological uh, different uh, level, so to speak.
0: Um, so sometimes nous is translated as like mind in some of the later hermetic texts, although I know that's controversial and some translators just leave it untranslated in order to not you know in, in order to acknowledge the ambiguity.
1: Yeah, right. Um, it is presented by Plato as this uh, sort of uh, eye of the soul, also. But um, while nous and uh, and and soul seem to be inseparable, they are different. Um, nous, uh, as the principle of soul, transcends uh, soul. So it would be. Uh, it is. It is the, the It can be conceived like news, a, like a, a self, uh, sort of like in the Jungian sense, um, something that it's uh, extra or meta metapsychic psychic. So it would it would not be the ordinary mind, uh, as such, uh, but what we before called the the intellect, which is not the same as as reason according to these uh, philosophical models um, and which would imply uh, well, another way it is um, regarded it's like it it is an ever watchful uh, awoke eye uh, open uh, open eye I mean um, which which by its its nature it's being pure observation. so it's sort of an uh an observer a uh, a witness of of sorts calls it uh um, plotinus um so it's not um it is transpersonal in a way we 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 could say so it would not be identified with soul in a, in a personal sense or with my ordinary consciousness um anyway Platonists have debated for centuries about the nature of, of the soul, uh, of the diamond, sorry. Um, in the first place, on the diamond of Socrates, uh, paradigmatically. Um, the, there's a continuing uh, continuous debate uh, among the, the Platonists about uh, what is the diamond of, of, of Socrates? How are we to understand the, the diamond? And uh, usually you have these two, two views. A, a view that it uh, looks at it as a more more of an, an internal reality, uh, but also a view uh, that it has more of an external uh, reality. And in the case of uh, someone like Proclus, um, uh, both can be correct. Um, it, it, it is two ways you can look at, 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 at this. But uh, it has an existence independent of, of uh, in the end, of, of soul, metaphysically uh, speaking. And its function is to direct soul to its tutelary de- deity, to reconnect or to direct the soul to the star from which it descended into incarnation so that it can return to this star or to its uh, the deity from which it uh, um, left.
0: It was interesting we were using those terms of like <clears throat> saying that noose is like an eye or like something that sees it reminded me immediately that Valen's like the very first line in the anthology is he says he associates the sun with noose mm-hmm. and he says that it um he calls the sun the all-seeing sun yeah. and also associates the sun with vision and with sight and perception yeah 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 sure. actually he's he actually says it's the organ of perception of the soul. So maybe mm-hmm. that's part of the reason why he says that right at the beginning of the anthology. Yes, yes, I
1: think so. And and this relationship of the sun with an eye, it's very old. It, it's older than Valens and Plotinus and so on. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And that actually brings up another point that's important, which is, you know, the, the Egyptians had that association, but um, I think a point that's important when we talk about diamonds and we're trying to distinguish between these internal and external um, conceptualizations and how that's tied in with Plato, a point that complicates things is that the astrologers, especially of the early Hellenistic tradition, are not just being influenced purely by Greek philosophy, even though that's a major element, but there's Mm -hmm. also some elements of the indigenous Egyptian um, religious and philosophical and metaphysical traditions that are also influencing things, especially through Hermeticism, uh, where Hermeticism sometimes while it exhibits elements of Greek philosophy and a familiarity with like Plato's Timaeus or with even um, uh, the the Jewish tradition, um, there's also some influences from Egyptian Mm. thinking in in the hermetic texts as well, which then is influencing the astrology, and that the Egyptians also had their own conceptualizations of diamonds or spirits that were, um, you know, issuing from the Deccans. And that may complicate things when it comes to our attempts to, like, you know, point to specific things and to to clarify. Um, things involving diamonds as there may have been like many different traditions of these intermediary spirits that were influencing the astrological tradition yes th- there's a
1: confluence of of several traditions uh, around this um this this conception um Iambricus, um argues with porphyry about an a hermetic astrological understanding of of the diamond and he insists that even though there are many, in the end, for the soul, there is there is one which is the main uh, the the main diamond, and um, and and certainly in the case of Hermetism, there's uh, a, a native Egyptian uh, uh, element uh, present in their um, in 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 that tradition. Uh, so, yeah, it, it is a very uh, complex um, idea, but um, that has an astrological application in the technique of determining the, um, the diamond related to the uh, ruler of, of, of the chart uh, astrologically. Um, the, the Platonists seem to have been applying this, these techniques Um, while recognizing its limitations because Jamblickus sort of seems to imply that um, it is not that easy just to mechanically determine with exactitude uh, to which planet uh, belongs the the diamond. It is an approximation or or a first, um, yeah, like an approximation that might be right or might be wrong but in the end, it is through ritual and a direct contact with the diamond that you can confirm the astrological calculations. Um, that's what uh, Jamblico seems to be um, uh, referring to to Porphyry in, in regard to this specific technique.
0: Right. Well, and, and he also objects to like one of his most fundamental objections seems to be is that he says that. If the daimon is something that was assigned in order to make us fulfill our fate and, and in order to ensure that we do, then he says that it doesn't make sense to invoke the diamond in order to free your free you from your fate because that's not its job, basically. Um, and I don't know where he ended up going with that. Cause obviously, through theurgy and other things, he thought that there was some ability to negotiate things or to become more free. But at, at least I always that that part of that exchange between Iamblichus and Porphyry always stuck with
1: me? Picolos affirms that uh, it is the same God that binds us to faith, which can liberate us uh, from faith. But liberation from faith, it's it's not uh, understood literally as to change faith, but to change our relationship with faith, the way soul... Um, experiences, uh, faith with, uh, with a detachment and, uh, um, and a sort of a spiritual uh, liberty. Um, and physically it seems like uh, within some limits, there can be also some, uh, the, the negotiation of, of some change, but fundamentally it is a change of relationship, uh, that may bring, uh, um, the theurgy to 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 the soul through the same gods that that bind it to generation that it's to sensible reality which are the planets
0: got it um well and to bring all of this full circle back to where we started at the beginning of the discussion about diamonds is that you know situating Proclus then in the fifth century in the context of Christianity becoming more dominant and, and hostile towards astrology as well as pagan philosophy, one of the things that Christianity became very hostile towards was the notion of diamonds and the notion of these spirits, and that these, like, quote unquote, pagan philosophers or, or even astrologers were somehow working with these things because the Christians started conceptualizing diamonds as evil entities, as like um, as demons, as negative spirits. Um, and that, in fact, um, I've read some arguments that Firmicus Maternus, when he writes his Christian polemical texts, that one of the things that seem, may have attracted to him to Christianity was the notion that that through Christianity one could be like rid of diamonds, um, which in and of itself would like free you from the influence of fate or the influence of the planets um, as a result of of that and while some level of notion of diamonds still survived in the Christian tradition where they were transformed into like angels, um, for the most part, diamonds started having a negative conceptualization in the Christian tradition from that point forward in the Western tradition. And that becomes another reason for why astrology and um, Platonism to some extent start being suppressed by the time of Proclus and especially after, after him. Yes,
1: there's, there's uh, demonization of the diamond uh, as well as of theurgy um, by figures like Augustine who equates theurgy with uh, black magic basically or or, or very low m- m- magic. And, uh, and the diamonds um, are uh, rejected, I understand, since they imply... The capacity for incarnated souls to have a direct, uh, an exp- yeah, a direct experience of the of the divine, being uh, intermediaries with which the soul may communicate and uh, and relate as messengers or, or uh, representatives of of the gods. Uh, so um, uh, Christianity did not want any. Uh, uh competence uh, so they uh, characterized so so badly this uh these notions that have originally nothing to do with this uh, terrible evil creatures we we usually associate with the diamonds as mm-hmm. demons that is
0: right okay mm-hmm. okay so we're back from a little break here um I wanted to transition to talking to just a few more points one of them though is a major one which is um it's going back to this ambiguity about is plato aware of astrology like a lot of the there's a lot of elements in the timaeus and in the myth of Ur which clearly um later people you know inf- influenced astrology and influence con- conceptualizations or where you know that several centuries later, once astrology had been developed, many astrologers and philosophers would have looked back at some of these statements by Plato and would have understood them much differently in an astrological context. Um, You know, notions about choosing your life before birth, about um, the cosmos being alive and other things like that. But one of the questions that's often that there often is is like, is Plato aware of astrology? Does Plato endorse astrology at all, um, or or is even cognizant of it as a concept? And there's this one line in the in the Timaeus that comes up over and over again, but it's been a point of dispute. Um, but I think it's really interesting, important both in terms of whether Plato, like what Plato originally wrote, and then secondarily, the question of what Proclus thought that Plato said in this passage. So, I'm going to read it really quickly. It's in a passage where Plato's talking about the planets. And here it is. So, this is from the Robin Waterfield translation. And this is Robin Waterfield's translation of it, where it says, As for the earth, our nurse, Winding around the axis that had been run straight through the universe, he designed it to be the preserver and creator of night and day, and the first and eldest of the gods that were created within the universe. But what about the dancing of these gods and the ways they pass by one another? Referring to the planets, what about the ways their revolutions turn back on themselves and go forward again? What about which of them come into conjunction and opposition with one another, and in what order they pass in front of one another, and at what times any of them are veiled from our sight, and then reappear. And then here's the important point of the passage it says, they re- then reappear to frighten those who are capable of calculation and to send them signs of the future. To describe all of this without visible models would be labor spent in vain. This will do as an account of the nature of the not visible created gods, so let's end it here. So This passage is super important because um, this point here where it says that the planets when they reappear that they can frighten those who are capable of calculation and that they send them signs of the future. Um, if you just read it on its face value, Plato is saying that there's some um, value in the planets as sending signs or signifying things about the future. If you take that passage at face value, which, if true, is kind of an acknowledgement and a recognition at the very least, like something akin to astrology, potentially one could read or interpret it in that way. Um, but what's interesting about the passage is that in some manuscripts, like in Cicero's transaction, or Cicero's translation of the Timaeus, where he translated it into Latin in the first century uh, BC, um, Cicero adds a knot To the actual sentence. So it says, like, to frighten those who are not capable of calculation and to send them signs of the future. So the phrase, when you add the not, flips it from being a, a sort of endorsement in some way, or at least recognition of astrology and the planets being capable of sending signs. To like a negation or kind of a mockery of it, that um, people who are not capable of calculating the planets are frightened of these things, or that they view them as signs of the future, sort of incredulously, or what have you. And what's interesting is that most translations of the Timaeus would follow the inclusion of the not, and they view this and translate this passage with the not. As a negation essentially of astrology. Um, But one of the points that's really, and and I had always followed those translations and assumed that that was true. Um, However, there's a very interesting paper by Robin Waterfield. And more recently, in his translation, his more recent translation of the Timaeus, he removes the knot and he says that, in fact, there's much greater textual evidence. That the knot was was not included in most of the manuscript tradition, and that most of the Platonists from the first century through the fourth century um, did not have that clause, but instead, you know, saw it as as a sort of endorsement or recognition of the astro- of astrology and of the planets being able to send signs of the future. And I had always thought that that was an unlikely interpretation, but then the more and more I've realized that actually no, he's Robin Waterfield's probably right because it's Cicero is the one who should be suspect because Cicero famously wrote an anti-astrology polemic. So if anybody was going to like alter the texts for ideological reasons, Cicero actually potentially would because this is otherwise a very glaring contradiction of something that he wouldn't have wanted to have endorsed himself even though he was otherwise interested in and translated the, the Timaeus. So what's interesting about that is usually other scholars like Harold Turand have argued that um, that it was Thrasyllus, the first-century astrologer, who also arranged the dialogues of Plato into sets of four, that it was Thrasilus who was the one that removed the knot, that then um, because he was an astrologer, he changed the text of Plato for ideological reasons to make it look like Plato believed in astrology. Um, And that's usually what most people say, but I think at this point, it's actually very plausible that it could have been the opposite, that it could have been Cicero that was the one who was motivated by these ideological concerns to reject astrology and that the rest of the astrological tradition including or philosophical tradition including Proclus traditionally did not have the knot in there because it genuinely was a reference to astrology that goes all the way back to Plato.
1: Yes I I know the the article of of Robin Waterfield that that you referred
0: to uh, a very interesting and 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 important work um the evidence for astrology in classical greece i think is the title of the article yeah i think so uh-huh yeah i think that's uh, that that's the title um
1: and i've been checking every time there's a new translation of the time you use, um i i like to check this uh, this passage because i think she's not alone in this uh, supposition even more um regular scholars not interested in in the theme of astrology uh have translated as um as meaning that uh, in effect uh, the, the, plan- the the planets can be signs because i think it's a mining, if i recall right the 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 term there in the in the greek so um and certainly for Proclus, that's the case. And Proclus knew quite well the, the text of, of Plato, his commentary on, on the Timaeus, which is a huge uh, text. It's a very um, meticulous analysis, line by line, of, of the text. And in this instance, he directly refers to the Chaldeans and to, and to astrology. Uh, as if Plato is uh, referring to the what it's called celestial divination of, of the Mesopotamian cultures, although he seems to be criticizing that tradition for a lack of a mathematical, metaphysical model to, to work with. But the important point is that the planets can be uh, um, uh, signs. That, that may be interpreted. And in that sense, it, it could be sort of a positive uh, reference for uh, regarding astrology. Now, I, I would also point uh, again to the epinomies, which uh, even if it is not by Pla- Plato's hand, it is a Platonic um, dialogue, very important for, uh, for the Platonists. And there there is a, a more explicit and developed um philosophical model that um that can work for, for astrology um besides a correlation between planets and, and the gods which is something um that uh, apparently uh, plato or, or maybe the pythagoreans before uh, introduced to to greek culture
0: um, that there's a connection. Did you say between us, the planets and the gods? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that and that's the most important thing that the Epinomis does. Um, whether it was written by Plato or, or I think most people argue that it was probably a student of Plato's, but still somebody mm-hmm. in his close close circle, like pretty close exactly. to his time period, is that that's the first text where um, the Greeks in Greek that the um, traditional Greek gods are associated and assigned to each of the planets, and it seems to be, I think many scholars at least argue or think that it's inspired by which gods were assigned to the planets in the earlier Mesopotamian tradition. So that it's like those connections were made in the Mesopotamian tradition already, but then we're seeing influence coming in from Mesopotamia and Meso- Mesopotamian astronomy and astrology into the Greek tradition in the eponymous there not just through that reference, but to another reference that occurs where it calls Saturn like the sun of the night or something like that, which is a a thing that happens in Mesopotamian astrology as well. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think the point is just that um, in a lot of my work, I focused more on the fact that Hellenistic astrology is a technical construct with some of the Hermetic texts associated with Hermes and Asclepius and Nechepso and Petasiris because those have been Located to probably being composed sometime around the second century BCE, which is, you know, a century or two after Plato. Um, I'd put so much of the focus on that time period that everything developed a long time after Plato. But in reality, we have actually quite a bit of evidence that Mesopotamian astrology and um, some exposure to it was happening around the time frame of of Plato and Aristotle and their successors, so that they they themselves may have been aware of some of that, and it may have influenced some of their discussions in ways that hasn't been recognized um, as well as it could have been previously.
1: Yes, uh, I think it's a more gradual uh, and, and progressive influence of of tra- or transmission. From Mesopotamian cultures to, to to the Greeks, from the very uh, early early beginnings, uh, n- not not something that happens um, like sort of out of nowhere in the in the Hellenistic uh, era, but there is a gra- gradual uh, uh, d- development. You have the figure also of Meton, m- Meton, um, related to the so called Metonic cycle. Of the, of the eclipses. Uh, he's referred by Aristophanes. Um, that is, he's a, a figure from the, the classical epoch. So even if we put Berossus uh, uh, later, uh, Meton is a figure that uh, belongs, it's, it's contemporary to, um, an ex, I, I don't recall exactly the, the dates, but it's contemporary to the classical uh, philosophers. And uh, he he would have uh, been transmitting astronomical knowledge from the Mesopotamian cultures to to Greece, so um, even before uh, Berossus, and um, Proclus regarding this passage you uh, you selected of the Timeus, which is uh, an, certainly an important passage. He gave us a side note um, about a text of Theophrastus, the student of Aristotle, where um, the Chaldean magicians and astrologers are mentioned to be be present uh, at the time of of Plato. There's also, which is admittedly uh, late, uh, a reference from Diogenes uh, Laertius uh, about uh, also uh, a Chaldean magician that predicts uh, Socrates his death uh, with with his chart. So that might be uh, 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 spurious. Um, however, um, there seems to be um, evidence of of a presence or knowledge of these uh, traditions um, by Plato's time in in, in Athens.
0: Right. Uh, Proclus cites Theophrastus, um, who lived around 330, as saying that the Mesopotamian or Chaldean astrologers were capable of predicting the course of a person's life as well as wow. their manner of death um, from the planets or from the heavens. So it's like clearly this is around, and I think it just... It's gonna to have to lead to more of a reappraisal of, because there's other bits of Plato as well of mm. references to like a division of twelve and and to certain gods being associated with it and other things like that. Where previously I was, I was much more skeptical, just following most of the academic scholarship that Plato would have had a lot of exposure to astrology. But I think there needs to be a reappraisal of this, especially given how Hellenistic astrology shows up. Seemingly, like fully formed at some point after the second century BCE, but clearly there would have been a much longer period of development. Even if some parts of that system were deliberately invented or or devised as a technical construct, um, there was a lot of intermediate phases, you know, before that, as you said, where things were developing more gradually, and uh, perhaps a reanalysis of Plato's role, uh, as well as his contemporaries role in sort of the early foundations of some of that maybe is necessary yes
1: I I think so uh, and and it is a work that it's been growing and uh, um I think it's time to leave out those prejudices that uh hasn't allowed Academy to approach astrology in in the case of Plato or, or in the case of uh, Aristotle but uh I think it's mainly because of of the prejudices you find in the Academy regarding astrology more than anything else
0: right because astrology is like philosophy is viewed as like one of the greatest creations of like Western culture whereas astrology is viewed as a as you know um, a pseudoscience that is one right. of the greatest embarrassments of that time frame and so they want some then you know, academic philosophers actively want to distance um, philosophy from astrology and to downplay it. Um, and you know, at the same time, on the same token, as astrologers and as historians, we want to be careful not to just project astrology back as far as right. we can, or to misattribute it to people who didn't believe in it or didn't practice it, and that can sometimes be. You know a shadow side or a dark tendency where sometimes astrologers at different points in history have tried to, like, you know, attribute belief in astrology to earlier historical figures in order to, like, um, you know, improve their own standing or, or something like that, improve the standing of astrology. So we don't want to fall into that trap either. Um, but it's just interesting. It would be interesting to reappraise the timeline and the sequence in the history of astrology to mm-hmm. look at things like this where. You know, in some instances, like Cicero is treated as being a more um a less ideologically driven source than Thraslas the astrologer would have been, or then you know, Proclus would have been as the head of the academy in the fifth century. And yet Cicero was anti-astrology. So was he really as independent or like not ideological driven as Thrasylis or Proclus would have been? You know, you could argue it either way. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're getting into the weeds about academic discussions here that are probably kind of beyond the scope of what we started out to do, but I think it's fun and it's getting to some interesting and important things. Let me check my notes and see, I think there was just one or two other discussion points I wanted to touch upon. Um, Just to briefly uh, add, uh, if
1: I may, um, one has to consider that the term astrology itself, I think I just more or less mentioned it. It's, it's present in the Presocratics, in Thales, uh, but it's also present uh, in Plato, in the symposium, for example. So uh, even the, the term itself uh, used as um, synonym with astronomy, it, it is there both in, in Plato, in Aristotle, and even in the so-called Presocratics.
0: Right, although it's hard to distinguish sometimes because um there was a confusion and there's an ambiguity and a lack of standardization in the terms for astrology versus astronomy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a trickiness where you're never fully clear which one they're referring to. Where sometimes a text will say astrology, but it means astronomy, or that it'll say astronomy, but it actually means astrology, and that ambiguity goes through most of the classical tradition. Mm -hmm. And some some people say that that's because there was. Some people take an extreme argument and say that's because there was no distinction between astronomy and astrology in the ancient world, which I think is taking it too far because I think there certainly were sometimes um, cases of astronomers who didn't believe in astrology um, and vice versa, that there were sometimes astrologers that weren't super proficient at advanced mathematical astronomy. Um, so we have to be careful about drawing too much conclusions from the interchange between those words because it may just be a result of like a lack of standardization. Um, but it is interesting that sometimes you do have that ambiguity in earlier texts, and there may be texts where we assume it's talking about astronomy, but in fact it could be referring to astrology.
1: Yeah, and 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 even as as you uh, underlined, not because the, the uh, even the term may be present, it, it is present in in Plato. That means that Plato approved uh, reading charts, or that he he used to interpret natal charts, or or, or that he was a an astrologer uh himself um but uh but it's interesting that it's it was already there all all these notions
0: yeah for sure for sure um okay I'm just looking through our notes to see um are there any other major discussion points that you wanted to make sure we mention or should we bring things we've gone through like Plato we've talked a lot about Plato and the Timaeus (laughs) Um, so, the Platonic tradition is like carried on um, by a, some teachers, but I think some issues happen um, in terms it's not like a continuous tradition. Um, eventually, I think a version of Platonism emerges at some point I think in the first century BCE that's usually referred to as Middle Platonism that is influenced by earlier early, early um, philosophers like Antiochus of Ascalon and that form of place, Platonism has it as a sort of like distinctive quality to it I think right
1: well we, we have to consider that like neoplatonism middle place Platonism is attack used by uh a, an etiquette used by by academics um the this period it's characterized by uh a distancing of platonism from skepticism
0: oh right and uh i, I, I forgot I, that th- uh-huh. that's a whole era that's actually really important is that the platonic academy went through like a skeptical um phase, mm-hmm. phase for a while after plato sometime around like what like 200 bce especially uh-huh. with with carnides uh, if that's uh, how you pronounce his name, who was one of the head of the Platonic Academy, was actively a what we would term today like a skeptic, and he may have been actually one of the earliest people who um, wrote uh, criticisms of astrology. I'm I'm not sure about that uh, as a as a critic of of, of astrology. But, yeah, and, and but actually, probably I should, uh-huh. I should correct that. Some scholars argue that, but actually, I think there was another philosopher named. Panenteus, who was a stoic philosopher who probably penned the critique and some people think that carnides influenced that but it's kind of arguable but but anyways okay. platonism mm-hmm. went through a, a skeptical phase exactly there's there's a phase and uh, uh where
1: platonism turns to uh, logical matters and uh it is uh, it, it limits itself regarding um, metaphysical assertions. And then uh, figures like Antiochus of Ascalon um, turn back uh, Platonism to, to metaphysics. So um, there are several uh, developments which uh, are more for the harmony of Plato and Aristotle and those who uh, oppose it. And this is one of the char- characteristics of, of Middle uh, Platonism. However, there is more of a continuity of metaphysics, um, of Platonic metaphysics, between Middle Platonism and so-called Neoplatonism than a stark uh, difference. So, uh, again, there is a, a continuity... Um, of uh, a a broad conception of of Platonism in in terms of metaphysics, from Plato all the way to the last uh, uh, philosophers, to the last uh, uh, Platonists, there there's no that much um, severe uh, cuts or differences but okay. there is there is not a, a historical continuity per se there are times when the uh, academy has been closed and when there has been no no teaching at Athens at least because from very early on the greek philosophy extended to the middle east and there were places that for centuries housed schools of of greek uh, philosophy so those some schools would still be alive others declined and so it's not a straight line but there is a sort of continuity of 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 the tradition
0: sure and certainly in the sense of like the timaeus and some of the different dialogues being um popular and being passed on and being read and interpreted in different ways um and there's different eras in which parts of Plato's philosophy may have been emphasized more or less, like during that skeptical phase versus during middle Platonism and Neoplatonism. And so you have this middle Platonism phase. Um, and then you have eventually Neoplatonism, which is usually um, said to have started with um, Plotinus in the what is the, the third century, I guess it would be., uh-huh. yeah. and then and then you get the era of Platonism that we've been talking about. Where you have this succession of like Plotinus, his student Porphyry, his student Iamblichus, and then eventually Proclus, um, where there's some intermediary teachers-student relationships in between those two, but then it eventually sort of culminates with Proclus as the, the last really ma- major figure. Although there are a few other minor commentary commentators and other ones after Proclus. Uh,
1: well it's been argued um i'm not that knowledgeable but uh, about Damascus, but uh but it's been argued that he has also uh, uh he's also a very relevant figure okay and uh, at at that uh, not only as a continuator but uh, because of work of his own there there are still extant a couple of commentaries of of uh, damascius on the on the Fido, on the Philebus, but there's also and uh, on the Parmenides, but there's also uh, a, a full work of him preserved, or, or almost uh, complete, uh, uh, completely preserved, and uh, it it presents a uh, a philosopher of of high stature, so uh, both Damascus and Simplicius would be like the very last uh big figures of uh of
0: Platonist uh, philosophy after Proclus got it right and Damascius was the last um head of the Athenian school when it was closed yeah. um by the emperor Justinian the yeah. so that gets us right to the end of that point okay mm-hmm. um so the last couple of things with Proclus to mention really quickly is um one of the things that's interesting is he goes so far as to follow Plato's astronomy and ordering of the planets. His his like dedication to Plato is so much that when there's a discrepancy sometimes in the later traditions, even the later scientific or astronomical traditions, he'll tend to side with Plato um, because his dedication to the almost like religious or mystical figure of Plato is so. Intense um, that it that it leads him to do that, which then is interesting because it leads him to clash sometimes with Ptolemy, um, who represents a later scientific um, standard and, and development of astronomy from the second century, from centuries after Plato. Um, so one of the interesting, most interesting things from a contemporary astrological standpoint, then that that leads Proclus to do is that he actually argues against precession. Um, and he thought that precession didn't exist. And he argues against Ptolemy's discovery, essentially, of precession, which, which t- Ptolemy had confirmed after Hipparchus, uh, the earlier astronomer Hipparchus. And um, Proclus partially argues against this for philosophical reasons, but he also argues against precession due to the discontinuity that it would create with earlier practices of casting charts, um, astrological charts, sidereally so it's really actually interesting what an intersection in history he was where procession wasn't fully confirmed and established or wasn't very well known and proclus unfortunately he ends up sort of falling on the wrong side of history there because it turns out that procession was an actual legitimate phenomenon but it's an interesting case study to see some of the reasons why he argues against it in his time frame yes i think uh, as you mentioned that
1: it's mainly because he does not want to contradict Plato, um, but also because he sees Plato aligned with what the Egyptians and the Chaldeans had uh, had taught about the uh, about astronomy, um, he speaks about uh, the, the the Greeks as as being instructed by the Egyptians, who were instructed by the Chaldeans, who were instructed by the gods. That's Pretty much what what he says so yeah it, it has to do with a sort of a reverence for tradition apparently his rejection of the procession as found in
0: ptolemy against whom he uh, directly uh, arguments right and there, there's actually a tradition of um i know robin waterfield cites one text from like pompeii or herculaneum that was discovered that that claimed that plato Went to Egypt to study astrology, um, you know, which is probably not true or probably a later legend, but it is interesting. At one point, I was rereading some part of Plato recently, and he starts talking about the Egyptian god Toth and how Toth was like the god of writing and astronomy and arithmetic and things like that. And it's actually kind of interesting. You know that Plato has some awareness of like Egyptian mythology and and things like that that he integrates into his um his philosophy so I I would be curious to see more of a comparison of like what Plato did know and and how he knew it from the Egyptian tradition
1: yeah the this idea of, of spiritual tourism uh it's an ideal uh for for platonists and uh and it is a a, a referred to uh, before Plato to um, Orpheus and, and Pythagoras as um, traveling to Egypt, to traveling to Babylonia and bringing the, uh, their knowledge um, to, to Greece. So, and also another, another enigma in the history of philosophy is the relationship of Plato with the Persian tradition which uh, evidently uh, up today, it's not a very popular subject in, in Western culture, but uh, Aristotle himself um, gives us the notice that in the Platonic Academy, there was an, an ever burning fire dedicated to Zoroaster. And there, there are glimpses in, in Aristotle fragments about the relationship between version thought um, and the the, the metaphysical principles in in Plato, especially the the so-called unwritten doctrines, according to which in Plato you would find not only a theory of forms, but also a theory of principles. And this theory would be transmitted only orally. And very faintly, you have traces of this in the dialogues but uh, the dialogues would be preparatory to what would be um, a metaphysical uh, a theory that would be the hardcore of of platonism and which might even be the source for uh, aristotelian notions as as form of, uh, and matter uh, by the way the the principle of unity and the principle of uh, um the uh, illimited, the limited principle or the, um, the other, the, um, uh, dual, uh, uh, principle. Like the and, same and the other. Uh, yeah. Like, like the same uh, and the yeah. other. And this would be of, uh, Pythagorean provenance, these, uh, these notions that would be present in Plato. Uh, however, there is no direct evidence or place in Plato's dialogue, where he calls his first principle the one, so uh, for for some people then this is conspicuous. But um, right after Plato, Speusippus and Xenocrates, which are his successors, there is direct evidence that uh, they they use these uh, metaphysical notions as the, the the main constructs of their. Um, Ontological models, and and these notions are present all the very all the way to the very last Platonic philosophers like Proclus and and, and Damascius. Um, this is a gigantic problem in the interpretation of of Plato and and Platonism, that probably has no no solution, definitive uh, solution, but. Uh, at the same time, it cannot be just uh, ignored.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because it's like the Persian Empire had already invaded Greece, you know, once or twice before, prior to Plato. Mm-hmm. And so the Persian Empire was in control of all of Mesopotamia. So the entire Mesopotamian astrological tradition, where everything had been going on astrologically there for centuries. Those two cultures of like Greece and Persia are are butting up right against each other and are overlapping and interacting in some ways. So it's kind of obvious that there would have been some cultural interactions there and some exchange of of ideas. They weren't, you know, operating completely independently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it shouldn't be surprising then that there might be um things from Mesopotamian from the Persian astrological and astronomical traditions then that are showing up culturally around the same time as Plato and Aristotle and then of course towards the end of Aristotle's life his student Alexander the the great invades Persia like takes over all of Mesopotamia and all of Egypt and that therefore creates the the hellenistic kin- kingdoms that kind of like unites all of those cultures together and then we just get this huge blending and mixtures of all of those cultures which is what then creates Hellenistic astrology which shows elements of all of them um but that's already happening you know like I said towards the end of Aristotle's lifetime so yeah there's a lot more there to look at and there's always a lot more cultural interaction than people realize sometimes um just because you know especially to anytime you put two, astrologers in a room together they start talking and comparing techniques and their approaches start to rub off on each other even if they don't agree or even if they disagree with things um, those interactions always end up creating something sort of like a chemical mixture between two Uh compounds yes yes i think it's something like that (laughs) all right so very last things and then we'll wrap up um in your article. So you wrote this amazing paper that was published in 2023 and the title is Astrology is to Theurgy, What Astronomy is to Theology in Late Antique Antique Platonism, Remarks on Proclus's Theurgy. Um, so one of the things you say in this that I just wanted to make sure we touch on is one, that you said that astrology was conceptualized by Proclus partially as heavenly writing or logos or speech and two that astrology is di- diagnostic while theurgy is preventative um what did you mean by that
1: well uh proclus is following Plotinus, who whom regards the the stars as letters which there there seems to be an echo of the babylonian traditions mm-hmm. um <clears throat> And Proclus expands on on this uh, metaphor, which is a metaphor at the base of the very notion of astrology. If logos, as we said, means language among among other things, and an astral uh, astral uh, language. So um, th- that regarding um, the celestial braiding.
0: Uh, sorry, the, the second part was. Well, then that's an interesting point. So if we put those together, if astrology is a language and the cosmos is a living entity, a god, and if the planets themselves are younger gods that are and the stars and the planets are like thinking and are animate, then it's like astrology becomes the language of the cosmos and the language of God in some sense so so especially Platonists would have conceptualized astrology in that way.
1: Exactly, uh, it's the language of reality or nature of reality itself. Sensible, uh, the sensible aspect of reality, the the corporeal realm, uh, it's the the effect of the astral uh, dynamics, but um, astral dynamics are the, the, the nature of, of that that we call uh, reality. And then astrological technique, Mimics or uh, or imitates this uh, dynamic, applies it, uh, um, but in a stronger metaphysical sense, astrology would refer to the dynamic nature of our our world.
0: Right, mm-hmm. and it becomes especially following Plato, like the language of fate, and it all the astrologers talk about it as as what you. Used in order to discover your fate. um, So astrology becomes the study of fate. um, But Mm -hmm. that either directly or indirectly goes back to Plato associating the planetary spheres um, with the fates and with um, the choice that's made at the moment prior to birth um, to incarnate into a certain life at a specific point in time in accordance with the alignment of the cosmos. Exactly. Uh, He associates it with the, uh, soul of the cosmos,
1: the, the, the stellar realm, which is an intermediary realm between the spiritual and the, and the corporal. And it, it is that which gives, uh, unity to, to this relationship. So, um, uh, it, it is, a it is, a, it is a logos, a, a law that, uh, ordains and structures, uh, all all change, in uh, which is the nature of sensible corporeal reality.
0: Okay, and then along with that, you said astrology is diagnostic for Proclus, uh-huh. while the- theurgy is preventative. Yeah, um, if
1: if the charts or astrology uh, gives a, a diagnose, then theurgy would be the remedial uh, aspect for a given uh, diagnose then you could look for the the different remedies to balance so to speak uh um uh, in in the case of a negative uh forecast Got given it. the conditional nature as, as we mentioned of, of fate
0: that makes sense so okay final question then we'll wrap this up can we do you think we can call Proclus an astrologer? So obviously he was a philosopher, he was the head of the Platonic Academy. Depending on how you define astrologer, would we also define Proclus as an astrologer? Because for me, everything I'm hearing and everything I'm reading in his texts, it sounds to me that he was somebody that was competent in astrology, he was trained in astrology, that he was aware of his own birth chart, um, that he And that he regularly incorporated astrology into his life in some way, especially to whatever extent he incorporated it through theurgy or used it to um, select auspicious times for theurgic rituals. It means that he's like incorporating astrology, astrological practice, and techniques in some sort of concrete way. And to me, I think that then makes it so that we could classify him as an astrologer. Um, in addition to a philosopher, what do you think, or where where do you fall when it comes to that?
1: Yeah, I would agree. I I think we should not be afraid to call Proclus an an astrologer. He was mm, maybe not a professional astrologer as Vettius Valens or uh, Stio, uh of Thebes, who is roughly a contemporary, but um. But he seems to be certainly knowledgeable about astrology. Mm-hmm uh so much that he published also regarding uh, 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 texts uh, specifically about astrology however th- those uh, have not remained they are lost but we know their their names from from some catalogs and uh, th- there's references to the to, to astrologers here and there uh, in
0: in in his works um Right. Like who does he mention? He mentions Petosiris. He mentions uh-huh. Ptolemy. Um, I'm trying to think of other astrologers he mentions.
1: Yeah. Nekepso and Petosiris and okay. um, uh, Ptolemy. I, I think that by name, th- th- that's it. Um, but then he refers to, to the astrologers
0: in, in, in the general, in, even in different works. I even found right, he refers to like the Chaldeans and other like uh-huh. early astrologers or Egyptian astrologers. Um, I found a reference last night, and I found like a somebody's rough draft translation of, of book three of his commentary on the republic. And at one point he's talking about the sun and the moon and how the sun is associated with and then eventually he says something about um making analogy and says about how astrologers used a lot of spirit. The lot of diamond as well as right. the lot of fortune, and he connects them with the sun and the moon, exactly. which again like re-emphasizes his technical familiarity, not not just in passing, but with very specific technical concepts that are used by the practicing astrologers.
1: Yes, exactly. There there are very specific references even to the lot of fortune and lot of the diamond in the commentary on the on the republic. And if one looks at the commentary of the time use, that's a treasure of astrological references. there are very specific clear uh, mentions of the correlationship between uh, the planets and the faculties of our soul and he names them and, and specifies them very very uh, very clearly. So um, uh, yeah uh, to uh, I, I would
0: uh, argue for a, a Proclus astrologer. Okay, awesome. Um, let me show this quote really quickly just to mm-hmm. demonstrate that. So, this is from, I found this online. It must be an unpublished translation by a scholar named Brian Duvik, who oh. um, posted on his academia.edu account um, this translation of Proclus's Commentary on the Republic. This is from book three. And it says, because he's talking about the daimon or the personal daimon. Procluses, and he says, This daimon, which we call personal, and fortune control human ways of life, well-endowed and even opposite ones, and forms of life, better or worse, and these govern all the matters that are proper to them by the choice of the life. But because he is an administrator of a life of which he is guardian, the daimon directs that person that chooses that life for example, that of a tyrant or of a king. But the fortune, since it is in charge of the matters distributed from the totality, because it belongs to the order that determines these matters for their lives, is different for each person. Both the multitude of them and the division has been defined, not by the forms of life, but by the risings of the totality. While the sun defines the daimon as one cause, the Moon defines fortune as another. This is why the lots too of the daemon and fortune are discovered from these gods in our births, in our nativities, as it is clear to those who have been trained in astrology." So it's like he's he's doing a commentary on the Republic. He's talking about the diamond being assigned to the soul in the Republic to like help the native carry forward their destiny. And then he starts very explicitly talking about the lot of spirit and lot of fortune and how that's connected in astrology. And this is probably, to me, this is like the highest level discussion and uniting of, of Hellenistic astrology with Platonism by a philosopher that, that you can find. I think, um, I, I think is demonstrated by Proclus. So for that reason, I think we can definitely call him an astrologer. Let's say an amateur astrologer in addition to being a professional philosopher yes, um a knowledgeable uh, astrologer uh, perhaps we we may say, yeah, um, maybe I shouldn't say amateur. I don't mean that in a negative sense, but in the sense of um like for not me professional yeah, just not you know, he's not making his income or his living from casting charts, right but one of my points that I've always made is. In the astrological community today, there's a lot of people that I classify as astrologers that don't make their income primarily through astrology. Um, But just because they don't make their primary income or vocation through astrology doesn't mean that they're not astrologers because um, to me, an astrologer is somebody that believes astrology is a legitimate phenomenon that is trained in and has studied it somewhat extensively. And then three that integrates it into their life on a regular basis um or or uses it in some way. And there's lots of people that are contemporary astrologers under that definition, um, even if astrology and reading charts for like clients is not their primary vocation, right. and that's true today. And I think that was also true in ancient times. and Proclus is a great example of that.
1: Yes, I agree. Yes, exactly. cool. and and maybe it's similar to, uh, the evaluation of, of, of Ptolemy, uh, who sometimes has been, uh, seen as a, just a theoretical astrologer, uh, and it seems so that, uh, it seems that it, it it is so because he was not a professional astrologer, but as you will say, uh, you can, it's one thing does not necessarily comes with the, with the other. And, and you can be a very competent, knowledgeable astrologer, even if the, your uh, uh, income does not come from astrology.
0: Yeah, I think there was a strong like reactionary movement against Ptolemy in the astrological community in the 1990s, where especially like James Holden mm. and Jeffrey Cornelius rejected that Ptolemy was an astrologer because he doesn't use any example charts and because mm he obviously he had many different interests in other areas and astrology was just one of the things that he talked about but i think um you're right that that really bears a reappraisal as well because just because he didn't have example charts or even if he wasn't a practicing astrologer in terms of sitting down and reading charts for people i think mm-hmm. he was still an astrologer and he was clearly still somebody that thought very deeply about the subject and also who even though he doesn't cite many astrological authors. When I was doing the episode on the lots last month, I came across a reference where he actually mentions Nechepso. He just doesn't use his name directly. He calls him the compiler. Um, but he cites this passage from Nechepso when he's talking about the calculation for the lot of fortune, and he's actually reading the same passage that Valens mentions when he brings up the discussion about the Lot of Fortune and how it's so ambiguous in the source text that he's drawing on. So Ptolemy was just as engaged in the earlier textual tradition as Valens and Dorotheus and the other astrologers like Proclus were. So I think he was also an astrologer and and we can't classify him as not being one just because he also did other things or didn't right. client clients. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um this has been amazing. We've we've swept through so many hundreds of years of like philosophy and history and astrology and a lot of stuff. Um thank you a lot for joining me for this today. This has been really amazing. So you wrote that paper and people can check that paper out for more um it was published in a book. I'm not sure if it's it's not available online, right?
1: It is. It is on the on the editorial uh it's an Italian editorial mimesis okay cool. and and I think in Amazon uh, it can be bought
0: also okay well I'll put a I'll put the title of that that paper as well as the book that it's in in the description below this episode if people want to check it out um what other things are you working on related to this topic or Proclus or what's um coming up for you in terms of the future with your work
1: uh, well, the the paper uh, it's also on on my academia. Uh, dot edu profile. Oh, it is okay. It, it, it is I'll, there
0: also available. I'll um, link to it there then.
1: But um, well, uh, I've been trying to to finish uh, because it's a partial work, uh, a, a, a book um, a, after my PhD work, uh, a book on. Uh, Platonism and astrology precisely, so hopefully one day I might be able to to put it out. And, uh, you know, I, I give consultations and, and, and teach astrology too, besides teaching at the university uh, ancient philosophy. And uh, I'm about to start a, a project of a, a webinar series on the relationship between
0: philosophy and astrology. So that's what uh, I'm, I'm up to now. Awesome. That's exciting. Um, so you're going to be starting that webinar series soon. I think you're doing the first webinar. Um, it's going to be a private Zoom webinar starting on February 24th. Is that right?
1: Yes. Uh, February uh, 24th, which is the uh, on Saturday. Yeah.
0: Okay. Awesome. And you, um, that webinar series will be in Spanish, right? Yes, it would be in Spanish. Okay. Great. Um, so people can find out more information about that on your website, which is capulus.com.mx, um, as well as your Facebook page, which is facebook.com/capulus7. And I'll put a link to that in the description below this episode on um, the astrology podcast, or below this video on YouTube. Um, and that's great to know that you also do astrological consultations and that you're you're available for that. So you're we we can call you definitely an astrologer. <laughs> You're a practicing astrologer, then. I am. I'm. Uh,
1: I'm. Uh, I'm about to complete thirty years since I started studying and practicing astrology.
0: Awesome. All right. As well as teaching, and you said you do private uh, teaching and tutoring.
1: Yes, I do. <laughs> That's okay. right. Okay.
0: Amazing. Cool. Well, um, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me for this today. This is a really amazing discussion. Um. You know, we've been planning on doing it for years, we've been almost <laughs> about to do it for years, but it finally came together, and I think it happened at the at the perfect time when it was supposed to happen. I'm, I'm glad we did it.
1: I think so. I enjoyed it very much, and I uh, thank you I very much. appreciate the opportunity to talk about practice and astrology.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. If you appreciate the work I'm doing here on the podcast and you'd like to find a way to support it, then consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. In exchange, you'll get access to some great subscriber benefits, including early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of The Forecast each month, our monthly auspicious elections podcast, which is only available to patrons, a whole exclusive podcast series called The Casual Astrology Podcast, or you can even get your name listed in the credits. You can find out more information at patreon.com slash Shout out to our sponsor for this episode, which is the Chani app, the number one astrology app for self-discovery, mindfulness, and healing. You can download it on the Apple App Store or on Google Play, or for more information, visit app.chani.com. Special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on Patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our Producers tier, including patrons Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Jeannie Marie Kaplan, Melissa Delano, and Sunny Bozboz. If you're looking for a reliable astrologer to get an astrological consultation with, then we have a new list of astrologers on the podcast website that we recommend for readings. Most of the astrologers specialize in birth chart readings, although some also offer sinistry, rectification, electional astrology, horary questions, and more. Find out more information at theastrologypodcast.com consultations. The astrology software that we use and recommend here on the podcast is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available for the PC at alabe.com. Use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we recommend a software program called AstroGold for Mac OS, which is from the creators of SolarFire for PC, and it includes both modern and traditional techniques. You can find out more information at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code astropodcast15 to get a 15% discount. If you'd like to learn more about my approach to astrology, then I'd recommend checking out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune where I go over the history, philosophy, and techniques of ancient astrology, taking people from beginner up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. If you're really looking to expand your studies of astrology, then I would recommend my Hellenistic Astrology course, which is an online course on ancient astrology, where I take people through basic concepts up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. There's over 100 hours of video lectures as well as guided readings of ancient texts, and by the time you finish the course, you will have a strong foundation in how to read birth charts, as well as make predictions. You can find out more information at courses.theastrologyschool.com. And finally, thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which is a quarterly astrology magazine, which you can read in print or online at mountainastrologer.com. And the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening both in person and online, May 23rd through the 27th, 2024, You can find out more information at norwac.net.